Well, good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 202 of the Prancing Pony podcast, where today we are summoning up all our courage to face an episode where we're mostly reading and not talking. I hope we can make it through this one. Oh, nice. And if you're wondering why we're talking this way, folks, well, just read the description in your podcast app. Yeah, it's right there. It's what it says on the tin. Yeah. But first, pull up a bench in the common room. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who's certain that day shall come again, Alan Sisto. I said that 70 times yesterday, but I won't tell you what I was doing. Yeah, please don't. I just hope you didn't get any orc blood stains on your shirt. (laughs) No. Or troll blood, for that matter. Or troll blood, yeah. Yeah. Now, anyway, for those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. Here at the Prancing Pony Podcast, we are working our way through J.R.R. Tolkien's Legendarium, a few pages at a time. We study the details, we make connections to other writings, we talk about our favorite themes. And we have a whole lot of fun along the way. So we're glad you've joined us. And we hope you'll be glad you joined us as well. But today we're not doing our usual read and talk our way through the chapter because we're celebrating our sixth annual Tolkien Reading Day special. Wow. I know, six. I can't believe we've been doing it for that long. Yeah. For those of you not familiar with the event, Tolkien Reading Day has been organized by the Tolkien Society since 2003, and I quote, to encourage fans to celebrate and promote the life and works of J.R.R. Tolkien by reading favorite passages. It's one of our favorite times every year. Yep. It happens every year on March 25th, which is the date of the downfall of Sauron and the destruction of Barad-dûr. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just a few days away as of when this episode comes out. So if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, you've still got a little time to figure out what your reading is going to be. That's right, because every year the Tolkien Society chooses a different theme to focus on. And this year's theme is hope and courage. So we'll be spending this episode reading some of our favorite Tolkien passages that focus on hope and courage, mostly from the Middle-earth legendarium, but maybe we'll slip a surprise in as well. We just might. But in keeping with our Tolkien Reading Day tradition here at the Prancing Pony Podcast, we're going to spend most of our time today, well, reading and not talking quite as much. That's always the goal. And we do want to start the reading as soon as possible. But first, it's time for a little talking because it's time for another installment of a fan favorite segment, Philology Fair. And for this segment, I'm going to be looking at the etymology of the words. Well, what else? Hope and courage. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It sure does. It's almost like we planned it. Well, (laughs) let's start by looking at hope. Now, often when we have a simple one-syllable word like hope, it's a sign that this is a native Germanic word we're looking at, uh, usually a word that goes back to Old English, and that's exactly the case here. Hope comes from the Old English noun hopa, which, Mm -hmm. according to the Oxford English Dictionary, which is always my first source for this segment, has sister forms in other Germanic languages like Dutch, German, even Danish and Swedish. Hopa first appears as a noun around the year 1000, but the verb form hopian appears a bit earlier. And there's something really interesting about that that I want to talk about. See, the earliest use of hope as a verb, which goes back to the late 19th century, is in regards to the theological virtue of hope. Yeah. In King Alfred the Great's translation of Boethius, we have the phrase, Hit nis no unit that we hope in to good. It is not vain for us to have hope in God. That is some pretty impressive old English there, Sean. I got to say. Well, thank you. really good. Thank you very much. And King Alfred's translation of Boethius there is actually a pretty good summation of the concept of Estelle hope. Right. That idea of hope that's founded on something. Hope that is founded on the idea that Eru has a plan. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Hopian in this verb form appears in other religious texts for a couple of centuries, various homilies and hymnals and things like that. And then later on in the Middle English period, that's when it starts to take on that other meaning of hope, that omdir meaning of just sort of looking forward to something that you desire. Right. Like I'm, I'm hoping for a sunny day tomorrow or something right, like that. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So even though hope is a, a really old word going back to Old English and yeah. earlier, if it has related forms in other languages, yeah, it's that theological meaning that's the earliest one and not the secular meaning. That's what it seems like. And that yeah. seems to be supported by other sources as well. I checked the online etymology dictionary on this as uh -huh. well, and they said pretty much the same thing. Yeah. So that's hope. Well, now let's take a look at courage, which is a much later addition to the English language. And now all I can think of is the cowardly lion. Well, of course. Courage. Courage. <laughs> yeah. Now, courage doesn't appear in English until about the 14th century, which is well into the Middle English yeah. period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It came in from Old French. The Old French form of that was courage. Mm -hmm. Now, that's from Latin. And if you're familiar with French or Latin or really any other Romance language, you could probably guess that courage has something to do with the word for heart. Right. Which in French is cur, Latin cor, Spanish corazón. And if you guessed that it has something to do with those words, well, you'd be right. Yes, you would. Now, early on, courage in Middle English could simply mean the heart, as in, you know, the emotions, the feels, whatever. All the feels, all the courage. All, all the feels, all the courages. Yeah. You actually see this in the first stanza, like the first 10 or 15 lines of the general prologue of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is a line, So pricketh him natura in here courages, which means, so nature incites them in their hearts. So there, okay. courage literally means heart. Right, right. Now, as time went on, courage began more and more to be associated with a certain type of heart, you know, bravery or boldness or valor. Like Richard the Lion hearted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That is interesting because courage as a virtue seems honestly to be more in keeping with the older Germanic mentality that we see in Old English. It's mm -hmm. very much a Beowulfian thing, right? Going yeah. out to do battle with the monsters attacking the circle of light, even with no hope of victory. See, yes. And you're hitting on something really interesting there. Yeah. I, I'd actually go so far. I, I actually made a connection in my mind as I was putting this together that hope reminds me of on fairy stories. Oh, yeah. You could almost say that hope is the concluding theme of on fairy stories with all of its mm -hmm. talk of eucatastrophe and evangelium and all that stuff. Right, right. And courage seems to be the guiding principle of that Germanic heroic ethos, you know, that's described yeah. in Beowulf, the monsters and the critics. Now, I know we always talk about on fairy stories and Beowulf, the monsters and the critics, like they're opposites. And I'm not saying no. that hope and courage are opposites. Far from it. We'll actually see in many of our readings today that they can go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And yet courage can also exist in the absence of hope, oh, yeah. as we see with Beowulf. And well, at least one of the readings I have later on, maybe a couple. Definitely one of mine. Yeah. Yeah. We'll very much see courage in the face of what is essentially hopelessness. An absence of hope. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I think I know which one your reading is too. So that'll be interesting. Mm -hmm. Seeing how courage is the more secular virtue and hope is, it's arguably both secular and theological, but as a virtue, it's primarily theological. Sure. Going back to that old English period, while courage ended up coming in later with all that Latin stuff. You would almost expect it to be the opposite. Yeah. Like the, the theological virtue would be like a, there would be a later Latin word for that. Right. But, that sounds yeah. like that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit ironic, but it is. Wow. 
Interesting stuff. Thank you for that really, really insightful segment, Sean. I hope, hope. (laughs) See what I did there? Very nicely done. Very nicely done. I hope that uh, people are able to really kind of keep that in mind as we read these passages on hope and courage. We will courageously move forward. Yes, we will. All right. Well, I guess I've got the first reading today. Yes, you do. And for our first reading, I am going to go to the story of Baron and Luthien. It's been a while since we talked about this one. Yeah, it has. Now, I'm not just going to the Silmarillion for this one because I'm kind of in the mood for some poetry, man. (laughs) Right on. So I'm going to the Lay of Lathian here tonight. Now, the passage I'm going to read is from the end of Canto 12 and the beginning of Canto 13. This is when Baron and Luthien are making their way towards Angband and going into Angband against really unfathomable odds. They're going quite literally into Morgoth's hood, like his castle. And they're disguised in the weirdest couples cosplay of all time. Remember, we had Baron in the Hame of Draugluin and Luthien in the winged mm-hmm. fell of Thuringwethel. So this is a really tense moment from the story of Baron and Luthien. And I am going to pick up the poem right when they get to the front gate and they see a little doggy waiting for them. <laughs> oh, who's a good dog? Oh, no, not you. <laughs> bad dog, bad dog. Bad get dog. down, Karkaroth. <laughs> All right. And who is this evil dog we're going to see? I'm going to tell you. Him, Karkaroth, the red maw, named the Songs of Elves. Not yet he came, disastrous, ravening, from the gates of Angband. There he sleepless waits, where those great portals threatening loom, his red eyes smolder in the gloom. His teeth are bare, his jaws are wide, and none may walk, nor creep, nor glide, nor thrust with power his menace past to enter Morgoth's dungeon vast. Now, lo, before his watchful eyes, a slinking shape he far descries that crawls into the frowning plain and halts at gaze, then on again comes stalking near, a wolvish shape, haggard, wayworn, with jaws agape. And o'er it, bat-like in wide rings, a reeling shadow slowly wings. Such shapes there oft were seen to roam, this land their native haunt and home. And yet his mood with strange unease is filled, and boding thoughts him sees. What grievous terror! What dread guard hath Morgoth set to wait, and barred his doors against all entering feet? Long ways we have come at last to meet the very maw of death that opes between us and our quest yet hopes we never had. No turning back. Thus Baron speaks, as in his track he halts and sees with werewolf eyes afar the horror that there lies. Then onward, desperate, he passed, skirting the black pits yawning vast, where King Fingolfin ruinous fell alone before the gates of hell. Before those gates, alone they stood, while Karkaroth in doubtful mood glowered upon them, and snarling spoke, and echoes in the arches woke. Hail, Draugluin, my kindred's lord, tis very long since hitherward thou camest. Yea, tis passing strange to see thee now. A grievous change is on thee, lord, who once so dire, so dauntless and as fleet as fire, ran over wild and waste. But now, with weariness, must bend and bow. Tis hard to find the struggling breath when Huon's teeth as sharp as death have rent the throat. What fortune rare brings thee back living here to fare, if Draugluin thou art? Come near, I would no more, and see thee clear. Who art thou, hungry upstart whelp, to bar my ways whom thou shouldst help? 
I fare with hasty tidings new to Morgoth from forest haunting Thu. Aside, for I must in, or go and swift my coming tell below. Then up that doorward slowly stood, eyes shining grim with evil mood, uneasy growling. Draugluin, if such thou be, now enter in. But what is this that crawls beside, slinking as if t'would neath thee hide? Though winged creatures to and fro unnumbered pass here, all I know, I know not this. Stay, vampire, stay! I like not thy kin nor thee. Come, say what sneaking errand thee doth bring, thou winged vermin, to the king. Small matter I doubt not if thou stay or enter, or if in my play I crush thee like a fly on wall, or bite thy wings and let thee crawl. Huge stalking, noisome, close he came. In Baron's eyes there gleamed a flame, the hair upon his neck uprose. Naught may the fragrance fair enclose, the odor of immortal flowers in everlasting spring neath showers that glitter silver in the grass in Valinor. Where air did pass to Nuviel, such air there went. From that foul devil-sharpened scent its sudden sweetness no disguise enchanted dark to cheat the eyes could keep, if near those nostrils drew snuffling in doubt. This baron knew, upon the brink of hell prepared for battle and death. Their threatening stared those dreadful shapes, in hatred both, false Draugluin and Karkaroth. When lo, a marvel to behold, some power, descended from of old, from race divine beyond the west, sudden Tenuviel possessed like inner fire, the vampire dark she flung aside, and like a lark cleaving through night to dawn she sprang, while sheer, heart-piercing silver rang her voice, as those long trumpets keen thrilling, unbearable, unseen in the cold isles of morn, her cloak by white hands woven like a smoke, like all-bewildering, all-enthralling, all-enfolding evening falling from lifted arms, as forth she stepped, across those awful eyes she swept, a shadow and a mist of dreams wherein entangled starlight gleams. Sleep, O oh unhappy tortured thrall, thou woe-begotten, fail and fall down, down from anguish, hatred, pain, from lust, from hunger, bond and chain, to that oblivion dark and deep, the well, the lightless pit of sleep. For one brief hour escape the net, the dreadful doom of life forget. His eyes were quenched, his limbs were loosed, he fell like running steer that noosed and tripped goes crashing to the ground. Death-like, moveless, without a sound outstretched he lay, as lightning's stroke had felled a huge or shadowing oak. Wow. Well, that takes us to the end of Canto 12, and I'm going to pick up again right at the beginning of Canto 13. All right, then. So if you're reading along at home, skip past the few pages of Christopher's commentary. <laughs> <laughs> we will not be reading the commentary tonight. No, we will not. Into the vast and echoing gloom, more dread than many tunneled tomb in labyrinthine pyramid where everlasting death is hid, down awful corridors that wind down to a menace dark enshrined, down to the mountain's roots profound, devoured, tormented, bored and ground by seething vermin spawned of stone, down to the depths they went alone. The arch behind of twilight shade they saw recede and dwindling fade, the thunderous forges rumor grew, a burning wind their roaring blew foul vapors up from gaping holes. Huge shapes there stood like carven trolls, enormous, hewn of blasted rock to forms that mortal likeness mock, monstrous and menacing, entombed. At every turn they silent loomed in fitful glares that leaped and died. 
There hammers clanged, and tongues there cried, with sound like smitten stone. There wailed faint from far under, called and failed amid the iron clink of chain, voices of captives put to pain. Loud rose a din of laughter hoarse, self-loathing yet without remorse. Loud came a singing harsh and fierce like swords of terror souls to pierce. Red was the glare through open doors of firelight mirrored on brazen floors, and up the arches towering clomb to glooms unguessed, to vaulted domes swathed in wavering smokes and steams, stabbed with flickering lightning gleams. To Morgoth's hall, where dreadful feast he held, and drank the blood of beast and lives of men, they stumbling came. Their eyes were dazed with smoke and flame. The pillars, reared like monstrous shores to bear earth's overwhelming floors, were devil-carven, shaped with skill such as unholy dreams doth fill. They towered like trees into the air, whose trunks are rooted in despair, whose shade is death, whose fruit is bane, whose boughs like serpents writhe in pain. Beneath them, ranged with spear and sword, stood Morgoth's sable-armored horde. The fire on blade and boss of shield was red as blood on stricken field. Beneath a monstrous column loomed the throne of Morgoth, and the doomed and dying gasped upon the floor, his hideous footstool, rape of war. About him sat his awful thanes, the Balrog lords with fiery manes, red-handed, mouthed with fangs of steel. Devouring wolves were crouched at heel. And o'er the host of hell there shone with a cold radiance, clear and wan, the Silmarils, the gems of fate, imprisoned in the crown of hate. Lo! Through the grinning portal's dread, sudden a shadow swooped and fled, and Baron gasped. He lay alone with crawling belly on the stone. A form, bat-winged, silent, flew where the huge pillared branches grew, amid the smokes and mounting steams. And as on the margin of dark dreams a dim-felt shadow unseen grows to cloud of vast unease, and woes foreboded, nameless, roll like doom upon the soul. So in that gloom the voices fell, and laughter died slow to silence many-eyed. A nameless doubt, a shapeless fear had entered in their caverns drear, and grew, and towered above them cowed, hearing in heart the trumpets loud of gods forgotten. Morgoth spoke, and thunderous the silence broke. Shadow, descend! And do not think to cheat mine eyes, in vain to shrink from thy lord's gaze or seek to hide. My will by none may be defied. Hope nor escape doth here await those that unbidden pass my gate. Descend, ere anger blast thy wing, thou foolish, frail, bat-shapen thing, and yet not bat within. Come down. Slow wheeling o'er his iron crown, reluctantly, shivering and small, Baron there saw the shadow fall, and drooped before the hideous throne, a weak and trembling thing alone. And as thereon great Morgoth bent his darkling gaze, he shuddering went, belly to earth, the cold sweat dank upon his fell, and crawling shrank beneath the darkness of that seat, beneath the shadow of those feet. Tenuviel spake, a shrill, thin sound, piercing those silences profound. A lawful errand here me brought, from Thu's dark mansions have I sought, from Tower Nefuan's shade I fear to stand before thy mighty chair. Thy name, thou shrieking waif, thy name! Tidings enough from Thu there came but short while since. What would he now? Why send such messenger as thou? Thurin Gwethel I am, who cast a shadow o'er the face aghast of the sallow moon in the doomed land of shivering Beleriand. Liar art thou, who shalt not weave deceit before mine eyes. 
Now leave thy form and raiment false, and stand revealed and delivered to my hand. There came a slow and shuddering change. The bat-like raiment, dark and strange, was loosed, and slowly shrank and fell quivering. She stood revealed in hell. About her slender shoulders hung her shadowy hair, and round her clung her garment dark, where glimmered pale the starlight caught in magic veil. Dim dreams and faint oblivious sleep fell softly thence in dungeons deep, and odor stole of elven flowers from elven dells where silver showers dripped softly through the evening air, and round there crawled with greedy stare dark shapes of snuffling hunger dread. With arms upraised and drooping head, then softly she began to sing, a theme of sleep and slumbering, wandering, woven with deeper spell than songs wherewith in ancient dell Melian did once the twilight fill, profound and fathomless and still. The fires of Angband flared and died, smoldered into darkness. Through the wide and hollow halls there rolled unfurled the shadows of the underworld. All movement stayed, and all sound ceased, save vaporous breath of orc and beast. One fire and darkness still abode, the lidless eyes of Morgoth glowed. One sound the breathing silence broke, the mirthless voice of Morgoth spoke. So, Luthien, so, Luthien, a liar like all elves and men. Yet welcome, welcome to my hall. I have a use for every thrall. What news of Thingol in his hole, shy lurking like a timid vole? What folly fresh is in his mind, who cannot keep his offspring blind from straying thus, or can devise no better counsel for his spies? She wavered, and she stayed her song. The road, she said was wild and long, but Thingol sent me not, nor knows what way his rebellious daughter goes. Yet every road and path will lead northward at last, and here of need I trembling come with humble brow, and here before thy throne I bow. For Luthien hath many arts for solace sweet of kingly hearts. And here of need thou shalt remain now, Luthien, in joy or pain, or pain, the fitting doom for all, for rebel, thief, and upstart thrall. Why should ye not in our fate share of woe and travail, or should I spare to slender limb and body frail breaking torment? Of what avail here dost thou deem thy babbling song and foolish laughter? Minstrels strong are at my call, yet I will give a respite brief, a while to live, a little while, though purchased dear to Luthien the fair and clear, a pretty toy for idle hour. In slothful gardens many a flower like thee the amorous gods are used honey-sweet to kiss, and cast then bruised, their fragrance loosing under feet. But here we seldom find such sweet amid our labors long and hard, from godlike idleness debarred. And who would not taste the honey-sweet lying to lips, or crush with feet the soft, cool tissue of pale flowers, easing like gods the dragging hours? Ah! Curse the gods! O oh, hunger dire! O oh, blinding thirsts unending fire! One moment shall ye cease, and slake your sting with morsel I here take. In his eyes the fire to flame was fanned, and forth he stretched his brazen hand. Luthien as shadow shrank aside. Not thus, O oh king, not thus, she cried, do great lords hark to humble boon. For every minstrel hath his tune, and some are strong and some are soft, and each would bear his song aloft and each a little while be heard, though rude the note and light the word. But Luthien hath cunning arts for solace sweet of kingly hearts. Now hearken. 
and her wings she caught then deftly up, and swift as thought slipped from his grasp, and wheeling round, fluttering before his eyes, she wound a mazy winged dance, and sped about his iron-crowned head. Suddenly her song began anew, and soft came dropping like a dew down from on high in that domed hall, her voice bewildering, magical, and grew to silver-murmuring streams, pale falling, in dark pools and dreams. She let her flying raiment sweep, and meshed with woven spells of sleep, as round the dark void she ranged and reeled, from wall to wall she turned and wheeled and danced such as never elf nor fay before devised, nor since that day. Then swallow swifter, then flitter mouse in dying light round darkened house more silken soft, more strange and fair than sylphine maidens of the air, whose wings in Varda's heavenly hall in rhythmic movement beat and fall. Down crumpled orc and balrog proud, all eyes were quenched, all heads were bowed. The fires of heart and maw were stilled, and ever, like a bird, she thrilled above a lightless world forlorn, in ecstasy enchanted born. All eyes were quenched, save those that glared in Morgoth's lowering brows, and stared in slowly wandering wonder round, and slow were in enchantment bowed. Their will wavered, and their fire failed, and as beneath his brows they paled, the Silmarils, like stars, were kindled that in the reek of earth had dwindled, escaping upwards clear to shine, glistening marvelous in heaven's mine. Then flaring, suddenly they fell, down, down upon the floors of hell. The dark and mighty head was bowed, like mountaintop beneath a cloud the shoulders foundered. The vast form crashed, as in overwhelming storm, huge cliffs in ruin slide and fall, and prone lay Morgoth in his hall. His crown there rolled upon the ground, a wheel of thunder. Then all sound died, and a silence grew as deep as were the heart of earth asleep. Wow. Ooh. Just wow. That is a fun passage, man. That is a really fun passage. And, you know, I, I remember that we've dabbled in this passage before. Little bits and pieces reminded mm -hmm. me that we talked about Flittermouse, for instance. Or, yeah. Of course, that moment when she sings and, uh, and, and the iron-crowned head, you know, he's falling asleep. Some things struck me, though. I have to admit, man, I know we've done that passage before, the part about, uh, you know, who would not taste the honey sweet lying to lips or crush with it. Wow. Oh, man. Creepy Morgoth. It is It is so icky, man. It is beyond, yeah. yeah. Uh, what he's talking about here is deeply disturbing. Yes, it is. He has very bad intentions towards her at this point. Very bad intentions. A pretty toy for idle hour. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. And and yes, this respite brief, right? You're going to live for a little while, but you're probably going to wish you hadn't. Right. Oh, man, that is dark, dark. And it, it makes is. her moment of hope and courage here all the stronger. Oh, so much so. Because, I mean, she just, she's never once cowed or intimidated by him. No, not at all. I mean, this is Morgoth. This is the fallen yeah. Vala. You know, this is the source of all evil in the world. Yeah. And you have just strolled into his house. Yeah. In disguise. He sees right through the disguise. <laughs> he does. Yeah. He doesn't. He does. He's not fooled for a second. No. He's like, you're not who you say you are. No. And she just, she just takes it in stride. Yeah. She has, and she just, she channels this power and she defies him. She does. She stands firm in the face mm -hmm. of torment, death. Overwhelming evil. Very horrible things done to her. I mean, this is as hellish as it gets. It is. This is quite literally hell on earth. It is. And you know what? So much of this description as they're walking into Angband reminds me so much of Dante. Yes. In the Inferno. I thought the same thing. Yeah. 
you know, there's Morgoth's thing that he says when he first sees them. Hope nor escape doth here await those that unbidden pass my gate. Right. He's talking about, you know, there's no hope here. No. And there's no escape. And there's no escape either. And that reminds me so much of Dante's uh, abandon all hope, ye who enter here, right? The famous saying on the gate of hell. That's exactly right. Man. This is a terrifying moment. And, you know, we even saw it with the bit that I read from Canto 12, where Baron sees Karkaroth and he's he's afraid. Oh, of course he is. But he's not going to turn back. And he says, hopes we never had. That's right. This is this is terrifying. We have no hope. But you know, we never had hope. We That's just right. came here because it's what we've got to do. Very yeah. Germanic. It is. This is the courage without hope that you were talking about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is. And yet this wasn't even the passage I was thinking of when I said that. So <laughs> No, I, I think we see some of each in each. I really do. I think there you're are right. moments of hope and there are moments of courage and there are moments where they're blended. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right because I, I think Luthien's courage comes, I, I dare say it might come from a place of hope. I think she knows she has power. I think, I think she has a little more hope than Baron does here. I, think I really so. do. Yeah. Baron's vision is a little bit more limited, isn't it? Well, and I guess that makes sense, right? He's a mortal man. You he's know? a mortal man. Yeah. He's not the daughter of Amaya. He doesn't no. know about this juice he's got, you know? Right. He's not one generation removed from, <laughs> you know, right. divinity. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's such a great moment. I love the description just because it's so, I mean, it's so cool. It's deeply terrifying, but it's so oh, it cool. it is. This would make an intensely dark scene. If this were to be... Oh. I mean, when I think of Alan Lee's illustrations for yes. the Baron and Luthien standalone volume, yeah, actually, this moment of Angband is one of my favorite illustrations in the whole book. It is. It is. I agree completely. Terrifying. Yeah. It really Absolutely is. terrifying. Absolutely a horror show. The entire and thing. It, yeah. it literally is a horror show. I mean, you know, bodies laying on the floor that Morgoth is using as a footstool and oh, Balrogs man. and orcs just hanging out drinking. Skulls and... for the skull throne. I mean, sorry, it's a Warhammer 40K reference. But okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's this is deeply disturbing stuff. And again, Morgoth, Morgoth's intentions towards Luthien when he sees her are just vile. And she is never intimidated. And it's, it's a cool moment for all that. Oh, it's a powerful, powerful passage. No doubt about it. And that power is powerful. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right. I'm going to let you live that down. Nope. That was terrible. Uh, I don't know. Was All that right. in a P5? Do we need to let people know that might have been? I don't know. It was, I don't it, remember. I can't remember. It was just me being not very eloquent. <laughs> uh, and me suggesting we buy you a thesaurus. But of course, you're really the word nerd among us. But well, that really was an intensely powerful passage. Yeah. Uh, and really, all of these are tonight, aren't they? I mean, this is they hope are. and courage. This isn't, yeah. you know, the hobbits in the Shire and and home and campfires and all of that stuff. I mean, you know, we've had some Tolkien reading day passages or themes that have been like that, right? Yeah. We have one about home and hearth. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Home. And I know we've had a lot of kind of lighter ones, but yeah, Yeah. these are some of the deeper, like most emotionally moving passages. And I hope that's what folks will find as we go on with these, but I hope so too. With that, why don't we go into your first one? Yeah. My first one, you know, when we looked at Hope and Courage, the very first name that came to my mind was that of Hurin. Of course. I'm not surprised. Of course. I mean, it's one of my favorite moments in all of the legendarium. I know you hear me say Aure and Tuluva all the time. So any excuse for me to read that is going to be one I'm going to take on. Now, there's a lot to be read here from of the fifth battle in the Silmarillion, but also from of the ruin of Beleriand and the fall of Fingolfin before that. And then also a little bit from the children of Hurin, the chapter called The Words of Hurin and Morgoth. Oh, yes. So I'm kind of patching this together, but I'm going to read it in 
kind of somewhat sequential order. And we're going to start with chapter 18, which is of the ruin of Beleriand and the fall of Fingolfin. All right, let's do it. There, Turgon the king received them well when he learned of their kin, for messages and dreams had come to him up Sirion from the sea, from Ulmo, lord of waters, warning him of woe to come and counseling him to deal kindly with the sons of the house of Hador, from whom help should come to him at need. Hurin and Huar dwelt as guests in the king's house for well nigh a year, and it is said that in this time Hurin learned much lore of the elves, and understood also something of the counsels and purposes of the king. For Turgon took great liking for the sons of Galdor, and spoke much with them. And he wished indeed to keep them in Gondolin out of love, and not only for his law that no stranger, be he elf or man, who found the way to the secret kingdom and looked upon the city should ever depart again, until the king should open the leaguer and the hidden people should come forth. But Hurin and Huor desired to return to their own people, and share in the wars and griefs that now beset them. And Hurin said to Turgon, Lord, we are but mortal men, and unlike the Eldar. They may endure for long years, awaiting battle with their enemies in some far distant day. But for us the time is short, and our hope and strength soon wither. Moreover, we did not find the road to Gondolin, and indeed we do not know surely where this city stands. For we were brought in fear and wonder by the high ways of the air, and in mercy our eyes were veiled. Then Turgon granted his prayer, and he said, By the way that you came, you have leave to depart, if Thorondor is willing. I grieve at this parting, yet in a little while, as the Eldar accounted, we may meet again. Well, later in that same chapter. When seven years had passed since the fourth battle, Morgoth renewed his assault, and he set a great force against Hithlam. The attack on the passes of the shadowy mountains was bitter. And in the siege of Aethel Sirion, Galdor the Tall, lord of Dorlomen, was slain by an arrow. That fortress he held on behalf of Fingon the High King, and in that same place his father Hador Lorendal died but a little time before. Hurin his son was then newly come to manhood, but he was great in strength, both of mind and body, and he drove the orcs with heavy slaughter from Ered Wethrin, and pursued them far across the sands of Anfaugleth. But King Fingon was hard put to it to hold back the army of Angband that came down from the north, and battle was joined upon the very plains of Hithlam. There Fingon was outnumbered, but the ships of Círdan sailed in great strength up the Firth of Drengist, and in the hour of need the elves of the Phalas came upon the host of Morgoth from the west. Then the orcs broke and fled, and the Eldar had the victory, and their horsed archers pursued them even into the Iron Mountains. Thereafter Hurin, son of Galdor, ruled the house of Hador in Dorlomen, and he served Fingon. Hurin was of less stature than his father's, or his son after him, but he was tireless and enduring in body, lithe and swift after the manner of his mother's kin, Harath of the Haladin. His wife was Morwen Elithwen, daughter of Baragund of the house of Beor. And like I often do, I actually ended that in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting so good at that. You really are. Well, later still in chapter 20, man, this was a moment. But it's not yet the moment. Let's just be clear. This whole <laughs> chapter is full of moments. This is, of course, the near Nyath Arnoidiad. Oh, yes. But now a cry went up, passing up the wind from the south from vale to vale, 
And elves and men lifted their voices in wonder and joy, for unsummoned and unlooked for, Turgon had opened the Leaguer of Gondolin and was come with an army ten thousand strong, with bright mail and long swords and spears like a forest. Then when Fingon heard afar the great trumpet of Turgon his brother, the shadow passed, and his heart was uplifted, and he shouted aloud, Utulianaure, Aya Eldalie Aratanatari, Utulianaure. The day has come. Behold, people of the Eldar and fathers of men, the day has come. And all those who heard his great voice echo in the hills answered, crying, Auta Ilome, the night is passing. Now Morgoth, who knew much of what was done and designed by his enemies, chose his hour. And trusting in his treacherous servants to hold back Mithros and prevent the union of his foes, he sent a force seeming great, and yet but part of all that he had made ready, towards Hithlam. And they were clad all in dun raiment, and showed no naked steel, and thus were already far over the sands of Anfaugleth before their approach was seen. Then the hearts of the Noldor grew hot, and their captains wished to assail their foes upon the plain. But Hurin spoke against it, and bade them beware of the guile of Morgoth, whose strength was always greater than it seemed, and his purpose other than he revealed. And though the signal of the approach of Mithros came not, and the host grew impatient, Hurin urged them still to await it, and to let the orcs break themselves in assault upon the hills. And now, later in the battle, and we've covered this passage a few times, and we're going to cover it again, I'm sure. Then, in the plain of Anfaugleth, on the fourth day of the war, there began Nirnaeth Arnoidiad, unnumbered tears, for no song or tale can contain all its grief. The host of Fingon retreated over the sands, and Haldir, lord of the Haladin, was slain in the rear guard. With him fell most of the men of Brethil, and came never back to their woods. But on the fifth day, as night fell, and they were still far from Eridwethrin, the orcs surrounded the host of Hithlam, and they fought until day, pressed ever closer. In the morning came hope, when the horns of Turgon were heard as he marched up with the main host of Gondolin, for they had been stationed southward, guarding the pass of Sirion, and Turgon restrained most of his people from the rash onslaught. Now he hastened to the aid of his brother, and the Gondolindrim were strong and clad in mail, and their ranks shone like a river of steel in the sun. Now the phalanx of the guard of the king broke through the ranks of the orcs, and Turgon hewed his way to the side of his brother, and it is told that the meeting of Turgon with Hurin, who stood beside Fingon, was glad in the midst of battle. Then hope was renewed in the hearts of the elves, and in that very time, at the third hour of morning, the trumpets of Mithros were heard at last coming up from the east, and the banners of the sons of Feanor assailed the enemy in the rear. Some have said that even then the Eldar might have won the day had all their hosts proved faithful, for the orcs wavered and their onslaught was stayed, and already some were turning to flight. But even as the vanguard of Mithros came upon the orcs, Morgoth loosed his last strength and Angband was emptied. There came wolves and wolf riders, and there came Balrogs and dragons, and Glaurung, father of dragons. The strength and terror of the great worm were now great indeed, and elves and men withered before him, 
and he came between the hosts of Mithras and Fingon and swept them apart. All that to set the stage for this moment that you all knew was coming. <laughs> we knew it was coming. Here it is. <laughs> it has to. But now in the Western battle, Fingon and Turgon were assailed by a tide of foes thrice greater than all the force that was left to them. Gothmog, Lord of Balrogs, High Captain of Angband, was come, and he drove a dark wedge between the elven hosts, surrounding King Fingon and thrusting Turgon and Hurin aside towards the Fen of Serek. Then he turned upon Fingon. That was a grim meeting. At last, Fingon stood alone with his guard dead about him, and he fought with Gothmog until another Balrog came behind and cast a thong of fire about him. Then Gothmog hewed him with his black axe, and a white flame sprang up from the helm of Fingon as it was cloven. Thus fell the High King of the Noldor, and they beat him into the dust with their maces, and his banner, blue and silver, they trod into the mire of his blood. The field was lost, but still Hurin and Huor and the remnant of the house of Haldor stood firm with Turgon of Gondolin, and the hosts of Morgoth could not yet win the pass of Sirion. Then Hurin spoke to Turgon, saying, Go now, Lord, while time is, for in you lives the last hope of the Eldar, and while Gondolin stands, Morgoth shall still know fear in his heart. But Turgon answered, Not long now can Gondolin be hidden, and being discovered it must fall. Then Huor spoke and said, Yet if it stands but a little while, then out of your house shall come the hope of elves and men. This I say to you, Lord, with the eyes of death, though we part here forever, and I shall not look on your white walls again. From you and from me a new star shall arise. Farewell. And Maeglin, Turgon's sister's son, who stood by, heard these words and did not forget them, but he said nothing. Then Turgon took the counsel of Hurin and Huor, and summoning all that remained of the host of Gondolin and such of Fingon's people as could be gathered, he retreated towards the pass of Sirion, and his captains Ecthelion and Glorfindel guarded the flanks to right and left so that none of the enemy should pass them by. But the men of Dorlomen held the rear guard, as Hurin and Huor desired, for they did not wish in their hearts to leave the Northlands, and if they could not win back to their homes, there they would stand to the end. Thus was the treachery of Uldor redressed, and of all the deeds of war that the fathers of men wrought in behalf of the Eldar, the last stand of the men of Dorlomen is most renowned. So it was that Turgon fought his way southward, until coming behind the guard of Hurin and Huor, he passed down Sirion and escaped, and he vanished into the mountains and was hidden from the eyes of Morgoth. But the brothers drew the remnant of the men of the house of Hador about them, and foot by foot they withdrew, until they came behind the fen of Serek and had the stream of Rivil before them. There they stood and gave way no more. Then all the hosts of Angband swarmed against them, and they bridged the stream with their dead and encircled the remnant of Hithlam as a gathering tide about a rock. There, as the sun westered on the sixth day, and the shadow of Ered Wethryn grew dark. Huor fell pierced with a venomed arrow in his eye, and all the valiant men of Hador were slain about him in a heap, and the orcs hewed their heads 
and piled them as a mound of gold in the sunset. Last of all, Hurin stood alone. Then he cast aside his shield and wielded an axe two-handed, and it is sung that the axe smoked in the black blood of the troll guard of Gothmog until it withered, and each time that he slew, Hurin cried, Aure in Tuluva, day shall come again. Seventy times he uttered that cry, but they took him at last alive by the command of Morgoth, for the orcs grappled him with their hands, which clung to him still, though he hewed off their arms, and ever their numbers were renewed until at last he fell buried beneath them. Then Gothmog bound him and dragged him to Angband with mockery. Thus ended near Nyath Arnoidiad as the sun went down beyond the sea. Wow. That's amazing. I know you've read that one a few times, but it's great every time. And I know you're not done. I know I'm not, but that is such, I know I'm, it's okay. I'm thinking the same thing and I needed to kind of take a you, breath. You need right? to take a breath after that moment. Man, that is a such a moment. But for some folks, they've never read this next bit, this little epilogue, this reminder of, of bravery and of course, courage from chapter three of the children of Hurin, the words of Hurin and Morgoth. Therefore, Hurin was brought before Morgoth. For Morgoth knew by his arts and his spies that Hurin had the friendship of the king, and he sought to daunt him with his eyes. But Hurin could not yet be daunted, and he defied Morgoth. Therefore Morgoth had him chained and set in slow torment. But after a while he came to him and offered him his choice to go free whither he would, or to receive power and rank as the greatest of Morgoth's captains, if he would but reveal where Turgon had his stronghold and aught else that he knew of the king's counsels. But Hurin the Steadfast mocked him, saying, Blind you are, Morgoth Bauglir, and blind shall ever be, seeing only the dark. You know not what rules the hearts of men, and if you knew you could not give it. But a fool is he who accepts what Morgoth offers. You will take first the price, and then withhold the promise, and I should get only death if I told you what you ask. Then Morgoth laughed, and he said, Death you may yet crave of me as a boon. Then he took Hurin to the Howth and Nirnaeth, and it was then new built, and the reek of death was upon it. And Morgoth set Hurin upon its top, and bade him look west towards Hithlam, and think of his wife and his son and other kin. For well, they dwell now in my realm, said Morgoth, and they are at my mercy. You have none, answered Hurin, but you will not come at Turgon through them, for they do not know his secrets. Then Wrath mastered Morgoth, and he said, Yet I may come at you and all your accursed house, and you shall be broken on my will, though you all were made of steel. And he took up a longsword that lay there, and broke it before the eyes of Hurin, and a splinter wounded his face, but Hurin did not blench. Then Morgoth, stretching out his long arm towards Dor Lomond, cursed Hurin and Morwen and their offspring, saying, Behold, the shadow of my thought shall lie upon them wherever they go, and my hate shall pursue them to the ends of the world. But Hurin said, You speak in vain, for you cannot see them, nor govern them from afar, not while you keep this shape 
and desire still to be a king visible on earth? Then Morgoth turned upon Hurin and he said, Fool, little among men, and they're the least of all that speak. Have you seen the Valar, or measured the power of Manwe and Vada? Do you know the reach of their thought? Or do you think, perhaps, that their thought is upon you, and that they may shield you from afar? I know not, said Hurin, yet so it might be, if they will, for the elder king shall not be dethroned while Ada endures. You say it, said Morgoth. I am the elder king, Melkor, first and mightiest of all the Valar, who was before the world and made it. The shadow of my purpose lies upon Arda, and all that is in it bends slowly and surely to my will. But upon all whom you love, my thought shall weigh as a cloud of doom, and it shall bring them down into darkness and despair. Wherever they go, evil shall arise. Whenever they speak, their words shall bring ill counsel. Whatsoever they do shall turn against them. They shall die without hope, cursing both life and death. But Hurin answered, Do you forget to whom you speak? Such things you spoke long ago to our fathers, but we escaped from your shadow, and now we have knowledge of you, for we have looked on the faces that have seen the light and heard the voices that have spoken with Manwe. Before Arda you were, but others also, and you did not make it. Neither are you the most mighty, for you have spent your strength upon yourself and wasted it in your own emptiness. No more are you now than an escaped thrall of the Valar, and their chain still awaits you. You have learned the lessons of your masters by rote, said Morgoth. But such childish lore will not help you. Now they are all fled away. This last, then, I will say to you, thrall, Morgoth, said Hurin, and it comes not from the Lord of the Eldar, but is put into my heart in this hour. You are not the Lord of men, and shall not be, though all Arda and Menel fall in your dominion. Beyond the circles of the world, you shall not pursue those who refuse you. Uh, Go, Hurin! Uh, yeah! Oh, man, I've got chills. Oh, I have got man. chills. There is so much hope and courage in Isn't that there? passage. I mean, yes. And I, I'm going to start at the end because okay. we're doing things differently today. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> I mean, the courage that Hurin has to stand up to Morgoth yeah. and, and to defy him to his face. Oh man, calling him a thrall and everything. Yeah. It's beautiful. I mean, you know, we, we talked about Luthien standing up to Morgoth and she did. And that yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Hurin actually tells him off. <laughs> he sure does, I mean, doesn't he? Wow. You know, we know that his courage is fueled by hope because yes. they're talking about you know, Morgoth is talking about how I am the Lord of all and you can't right. escape me. And Hurin is like, dude, you're nothing beyond the circles of the world. That's right. Your power is finite. You have got nothing on me. That's right. We are men. We will leave Arda and you will not be able to pursue us. I mean, that is not. Estelle 
fueled courage. It really is. And you can see that in that, that little clue that we get that this doesn't come from the lore of the Eldar. It is put into my heart yes. in this hour. Yes, exactly. Yeah. My heart, his courage, right? Yes. Yes. This is some external source. You know, we see all the time these moments in Tolkien mm-hmm. of somebody speaking through somebody else in a way. And and here, this is Hurin hearing and learning and finding out, perhaps even from Iluvatar himself, that Melkor <laughs> Morgoth is not going to be able to pursue people right. beyond the circles of the world. Oh, that's right. So, so intense. It mm. is. And it's so great because this comes right at the beginning of the Children of Hurin. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously we know how horribly that turns out. Oh my goodness. It sure does. It sure does. Oh, it's awful. Every, every awful moment. You know, Morgoth is right. Yeah. He, he is going to pursue them throughout their lives. Yeah. And everything they say, their words will bring in bad counsel and, and evil will arise. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, look, people go back to season one of the show and listen to those episodes again if you don't oh. remember the story. Yeah. Those three episodes on both Turin, of Hurin's yeah. children die despairing. They die yeah. without hope. They, they both take their own lives. They do really curse both life and death. You're absolutely yeah, right. They yeah. do. They die without any hope. And yet, this is a beautiful moment to have at the beginning of the book because it's isn't it? Yeah. It's the reminder that look, everything you're about to see is going to be horrible, but there is still hope. Yeah, maybe there isn't hope for them in life, but there is still hope for them. And that's correct because beyond the circles of the world, Morgoth can do nothing to right. Turin. And there's a little bit of of wonderful future stuff that we know about, right? What about the end of time? Yeah, who is it? That's right. That kills. Morgoth at the end of all time. Turin is the one. Turin wields the blade. That's right. <laughs> that is awesome. I love that turnaround. Turin gets his revenge. Yes, he does. And I hope that Neonor is right there cheering him oh, on. Oh, I do too. I do too. Yeah. Oh. There's so much more in this passage though, too. I mean, obviously the, the stuff at the near ninth or Nordiad itself oh, is man. so powerful. I mean, mm-hmm. the arrival of Turgon's forces. Right? Oh, yeah. The spears like a forest. What a picture that is, huh? Yeah. And I love that 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 bit of Quenya, Utuli and Aure. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, I mean, obviously Aure and Tulava later on is right. Is a, a huge moment for lots of people. I know like two people who have that tattoo. Aure and Tulava. Yeah, I, I'm telling you, I don't have tattoos, but that would be one I'd be very tempted to get. <laughs> that would it? be on your short list, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I love the it's Utuli and Aure. Alta Ilome, you know, that's so yeah. great. Alta and, Ilome, the night is passing. Ugh. And then, of course, you know I love the moment where Huor says oh, to Turgon, yeah. <laughs> talks about the new star rising. I mean- The one named Eärendil? Yeah. yeah. I have absolutely. no idea who you're talking about. I'm no, sorry. Who? What? what? What do you mean? Seriously, man. I mean, that's that's Eärendil's story all over, right? He yeah. is the star of hope. He is yes, hope he for is. elves and men. And so we see that even in the midst of this horrible defeat for elves and men at the near Nyth Arnoidiad, we see that hope is born out of this. That's right. Not just for Hurin and hope for his children, but you know, hope for Middle Earth is going to come out of this. It's interesting. Usually, it seems to me that hope fuels courage. That is, you find somebody who takes courage because they have hope. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's the courage of Hurin and Huor in defending that rear guard and holding back the forces of Morgoth that in fact enables hope. That is a very good point. I love that little flip. Yeah. really do. That's pretty amazing. There's a lot of other little things I think that are just amazing. As you go through that passage, maybe take a look at things like that intervention of Ulmo at the very beginning with the dreams to Turgon. Yeah. 
I love this idea. You know, he talks about Huron, that is, when he's talking to Turgon, that as mortal men, basically time is short. Our hope and strength, which really is kind of a synonym here for courage, hope and strength, hope and mm-hmm. courage soon yeah, wither. Okay. Yeah. We are mortal and we've got to get out there. Yeah. It's a bit of that Germanic, that Beowulfian stuff in that, you know, look, Very we're, Beowulfian, we've yeah. got the strength. Let's go out there and fight the monsters. That's what we do. Yeah. I want to get out there. He wants to share in the griefs and battles. Yeah. That is amazing because here's a guy who's stuck in basically paradise on earth right now. Yeah. I mean, if there's, there's really no better place than Gondolin, it's the only safe place. Right. <laughs> really the it's only true, safe yeah. place. Yeah. They could just hide there and. Yeah. For the rest of their lives and it'd be wonderful. Yeah. But he doesn't want that. He wants to share in the griefs and in the battles of his people. Yeah. Amazing. I, I there were uh, some moments that I picked specifically because I wanted to kind of show off a little bit about Hurin. I thought it was neat. I mean, obviously everybody loves the moment where he's, you know, 70 times, right? Yeah. I thought it was interesting to see that he has a real good head for battle, mm. right? The, the hearts of the Noldor grew hot. They wanted to go out and, and fight the enemy on the plane. Yeah. Huron says, wait, be patient. We're, we're in a good defensive position here. This is a young guy who came into his kingship, his lordship, much earlier than he should have had to. And he wasn't like the others. He wasn't tall and big and strong. You know, we no, get that's that right. passage we earlier, that he's right? of less stature, right? Right. Yeah. But tireless, mm-hmm. uh, he was lithe and swift. So I, I wanted to include those little bits and pieces to kind of give us a picture of who Huron was mm-hmm. and what he was like as a leader. Yeah. So I just, you know, such an amazing, uh, amazing story. And obviously I could have read more of it, but I wanted to trim it down a bit and focus on those, those powerful bits. Yeah. But obviously the, the big moment, right? Oh yeah. Aure yeah. and Tuleva. I mean, so much courage in the face of overwhelming numbers. Overwhelming odds. He has, in this case, he has no hope at least of surviving. No. He knows it's over. He has no hope of surviving, but he has hope that day will come again. Yes. That's why he keeps saying that. He keeps saying day will come again. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if I die here. That's right. And we know he's not going to, but it doesn't matter if I die here because even if, you know, even if evil wins for a little while, day will come again. Don't know when, don't know how. Don't even know if I'll be here to see it. Don't even know if I'll be here to see it. Right. But day will come again. And that yeah. is, that's pure hope, man. That's pure hope. Boy, it sure is. Well, Morgoth isn't pursuing us beyond the circles of the world, at least not yet. Uh, so we've got a little bit of time. <laughs> Thankfully, that's kind of grim. <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> to remind you about a couple of things on our website. First up, our inaugural PPP moot is coming. It's going to run from May 14th to 16th. And you're going to want to visit our website, theprancingponypodcast.com for more information and to register for the event. Folks, we are so excited about this and we can't wait for you all to join us for our first moot. Yeah. One of our keynote speakers will be Dr. Amy Sturgis. She's taught courses on everything from Tolkien and Harry Potter to Star Wars and Star Trek. And mm-hmm. she's just a fantastic speaker. We actually saw her at last year's Myth Moot and we're really looking forward to having her join us. And we really are. I want to talk to her about Star Trek. Maybe we should have her do her keynote on Star Trek. would <laughs> be kind of cool. I'd be lost. I know you would. That's okay, though. You'd be one of those nameless red shirts who, you know, That's fights right. it at the beginning of the show. Exactly. Our other keynote speaker is Dr. Michael Drought. No red shirt he. He joined us here on the Prancing Pony podcast all the way back in episode 66. He edited the J.R.R. Tolkien Encyclopedia. He's a co-editor for Tolkien Studies. He's been involved with Lotro and so much more. And we are really thrilled to have him join us as well. Yeah, we are. Now, the theme for our first PPP moot is digital recovery. It's going to be all about the many ways we find fairy online and regain a clear view from virtual communities and online fandom. 
We've got a full slate of presentations. We've got some other special guests lined up, and we've got a lot of fun social events coming as well, including a pub quiz and a live AMA-style episode recording. So please, seriously, plan on joining us. You won't want to miss it. That's right. Now, by the time you hear this, our event page should be up and running, so you can look at the schedule, check out our keynote speakers, and most importantly, register to attend the three-day event. We've worked really hard to make our moot as accessible to as many people as possible, both in terms of time zones and cost. It's only $25 for the whole thing if you sign up by March 31st. The price is going to go up to $35 starting on April 1st, so get the early bird discount by going to the prancingponypodcast.com and signing up today. Now, of course, our website still has all the rest of the good stuff as well. Show notes and outtakes, Prancing Pony Ponderings, and our online storefront where you can get PPP shirts, mugs, stickers, and more. Now, one of the best resources we have is our all-new library. Our web guru, Phil Dean, has worked hard on redesigning the library, and it shows. As you know, we love the books here at the Prancing Pony Podcast, and we want to make sure you can get your hands on any of the books that we mention here. Yeah, we may talk about a lot of Tolkien-related stuff on the podcast, but you folks who have listened before know that Alan and I are really fans of Tolkien's books and books about Tolkien. That's why we have the library page, with links to every book we've mentioned on the show. Now, of course, we do make a few pennies from the purchases that you make from those links, so thank you for your support. Well, we're doing something a little different here. Normally, we take turns with the readings, but yeah. as we were outlining this episode, we realized that having Alan's next reading go after my next reading <laughs> didn't really work too well. Yeah, you'll understand why in, I don't know, about a half hour. Not that we're spoiling anything for anybody, no. but, you know, uh, still, it just made sense for Alan to go again. So I'm going to let him go mm-hmm. again. And then I'll do my next reading. Sounds like a plan. And the good news is, I don't think either of us have any more Morgoth voices to do. Oh, thank goodness. I don't think I can. (laughs) My goodness. I don't know if my voice will recover. No more Morgoth dialogue for a few years, please. (laughs) At least. Thank you. All right. We found our Morgoth voices and they hurt. They do. They definitely (laughs) do. All right. Well, for my next reading, I'm actually going to pull from a chapter we're coming up to very soon in this season. Book three, chapter seven. Helm's Deep. I want to talk about the courage, sometimes in the total absence of hope, of Theoden. All right. So we're going to start as Theoden and company are riding to the fords of the Isen. As the second day of their riding drew on, the heaviness in the air increased. In the afternoon, the dark clouds began to overtake them, a somber canopy with great billowing edges flecked with dazzling light. The sun went down blood red in a smoking haze. The spears of the riders were tipped with fire as the last shafts of light kindled the steep faces of the peaks of Thryhirn. Now very near they stood on the northernmost arm of the White Mountains, three jagged horns staring at the sunset. In the last red glow, men in the vanguard saw a black speck, a horseman riding back towards them. They halted, awaiting him. He came, a weary man with dinted helm and cloven shield. Slowly he climbed from his horse and stood there a while, gasping. At length he spoke. Is Aemir here? he asked. You come at last, but too late, and with too little strength. Things have gone evilly since Theodred fell. We were driven back yesterday over the Eisen with great loss. Many perished at the crossing. Then at night fresh forces came over the river against our camp. 
All Isengard must be emptied, and Saruman has armed the wild hillmen and herdfolk of Dunlan beyond the rivers, and these also he loosed upon us. We were overmastered. The shield wall was broken. Erkenbrand of Westfold has drawn off those men he could gather towards his fastness in Helm's Deep, and the rest are scattered. Where is Eomer? Tell him there is no hope ahead. He should return to Edoras before the wolves of Isengard come there. Theoden had sat silent, hidden from the man's sight behind his guards. Now he urged his horse forward. Come, stand before me, Cheryl, he said. I am here. The last host of the Aeolingus has ridden forth. It will not return without battle. The man's face lightened with joy and wonder. He drew himself up. Then he knelt, offering his notched sword to the king. Command me, lord, he cried, and pardon me. I thought you thought I remained in Medjuseld, bent like an old tree under winter snow. So it was when you rode to war. But a west wind has shaken the boughs, said Theoden. Give this man a fresh horse. Let us ride to the help of Erkenbrand. Well, later Gandalf would tell Theoden and the rest of the men to go to Helm's Deep while he rode away on Shadowfax. After being told that some had seen an old man in white upon a horse passing hither and thither over the plains, Theoden says, But in this need we have no better choice than to go on, as Gandalf said, to Helm's Gate, whether Erkenbrand be there or no. Is it known how great is the host that comes from the north? It is very great, said the scout. He that flies counts every foeman twice. Yet I have spoken to stout-hearted men, and I do not doubt that the main strength of the enemy is many times as great as all that we have here. Then let us be swift, said Eomer. Let us drive through such foes as are already between us and the fastness. There are caves in Helm's Deep where hundreds may lie hid, and secret ways lead thence up onto the hills. Thrust not to secret ways, said the king. Saruman has long spied out this land. Still in that place our defense may last long. Let us go. Aragorn and Legolas went now with Eomer in the van. On through the dark night they rode, ever slower as the darkness deepened, and their way climbed southward, higher and higher, into the dim folds about the mountain's feet. They found few of the enemy before them. Here and there they came upon roving bands of orcs, but they fled ere the riders could take or slay them. It will not be long, I fear, said Eomer, ere the coming of the king's host will be known to the leader of our enemies, Saruman, or whatever captain he has sent forth. The rumor of war grew behind them. Now they could hear, borne over the dark, the sound of harsh singing. They had climbed far up into the deeping coombe when they looked back. Then they saw torches, countless points of fiery light upon the black fields behind, scattered like red flowers, or winding up from the lowlands in long, flickering lines. Here and there a larger blaze leapt up. It is a great host and follows us hard, said Aragorn. They bring fire, said Theoden, and they are burning as they come, rick, cot, and tree. This was a rich vale and had many homesteads. Alas for my folk. So we can see Theoden here losing a little bit of hope. Yeah, understandably. Yeah, no doubt. And we're going to see him lose some more. Because as they arrive, Theoden learns some troubling news. The host passed through the breach and halted on the sloping sward above. They now learned to their joy that Erkenbrand had left many men to hold Helm's Gate, and more had since escaped thither. Maybe we have a thousand fit to fight on foot, said Gamling, an old man, the leader of those that watched the dyke. But most of them have seen too many winters as I have, or too few as my son's son here. 
What news of Erkenbran? Word came yesterday that he was retreating hither with all that is left of the best riders of Westfold, and he has not come. I fear that he will not come now, said Eomer. Our scouts have gained no news of him, and the enemy fills all the valley behind us. I would that he had escaped, said Theoden. He was a mighty man. In him lived again the valor of Helm the Hammerhand. And now we move on to the assault itself, which is where Theoden starts to lose even more hope for good reason. <laughs> for quite good reason. Yeah. It was now past midnight. The sky was utterly dark, and the stillness of the heavy air foreboded storm. Suddenly the clouds were seared by a blinding flash. Branched lightning smote down upon the eastward hills. For a staring moment, the watchers on the walls saw all the space between them and the dike lit with white light. It was boiling and crawling with black shapes, some squat and broad, some tall and grim, with high helms and sable shields. Hundreds and hundreds more were pouring over the dike and through the breach. The dark tide flowed up to the walls from cliff to cliff. Thunder rolled in the valley. Rain came lashing down. Arrows thick as the rain came whistling over the battlements and fell clinking and glancing on the stones. Some found a mark. The assault on Helm's Deep had begun, but no sound or challenge was heard within. No answering arrows came. The assailing hosts halted, foiled by the silent menace of rock and wall. Ever and again, the lightning tore aside the darkness. Then the orcs screamed, waving spear and sword and shooting a cloud of arrows at any that stood revealed upon the battlements. And the men of the mark, amazed, looked out, as it seemed to them, upon a great field of dark corn tossed by a tempest of war and every ear glinted with barbed light. Brazen trumpets sounded. The enemy surged forward, some against the deeping wall, others towards the causeway and the ramp that led up to the Hornburg gates. There the hugest orcs were mustered, and the wild men of the Dunland fells. A moment they hesitated, and then on they came. The lightning flashed, and blazoned upon every helm and shield, the ghastly hand of Isengard was seen. They reached the summit of the rock, they drove towards the gates. Then at last an answer came. A storm of arrows met them, and a hail of stones. They wavered, broke, and fled back, and then charged again, broke, and charged again. And each time, like the incoming sea, they halted at a higher point. Again trumpets rang, and a press of roaring men leaped forth. They held their great shields above them like a roof, while in their midst they bore two trunks of mighty trees, Behind them, orc archers crowded, sending a hail of darts against the bowmen on the walls. They gained the gates. The trees, swung by strong arms, smote the timbers with a rending boom. If any man fell, crushed by a stone hurtling from above, two others sprang to take his place. Again and again, the great rams swung and crashed. And it gets worse. Wow. Oh, yeah, it gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse. Later, the orcs are going to crawl through the culvert and enter the deep, but the Hornburg still stood. At this point, night was near an end, and we learn a little bit more about what Theoden is facing. Dawn is not far off, said Gamling, who had now climbed up beside him. But dawn will not help us, I fear. Yet dawn is ever the hope of men, said Aragorn. 
But these creatures of Isengard, these half-orcs and goblin men that the foul craft of Sodom and his bread, they will not quail at the sun, said Gamling, and neither will the wild men of the hills. Do you not hear their voices? I hear them, said Aemir, but they are only the scream of birds and the bellowing of beasts to my ears. Yet there are many that cry in the Dunlin tongue, said Gamling. I know that tongue. It is an ancient speech of men, and once was spoken in many western valleys of the Mark. Hark! They hate us, and they are glad, for our doom seems certain to them. The king, the king, they cry. We will take their king. Death to the foregoyle, death to the strawheads, death to the robbers of the north. Such names they have for us. Not in half a thousand years have they forgotten their grievance that the lords of Gondor gave the mark to Aeorl the young and made alliance with him. That old hatred Saruman has inflamed. They are fierce folk when roused. They will not give way now for dusk or dawn until Theoden is taken, or they themselves are slain. As Theoden will say later, this is the reckless hate. Yeah. There's nothing that can really be done against this because they have nothing to lose. Right. But it gets even worse because now <laughs> the orcs have used the fire of Orthanc. They have breached the deep. Legolas and Gimli are separated. And now Aragorn cannot find Aemir, but he does find the king. Is this the part where Aragorn tosses Gimli? <laughs> <laughs> That's in the book. Nobody right? tosses a dwarf. <laughs> Honestly, th- you know, despite a few little things like that, which are, are funny, though, I'm yeah. sure they drive some people crazy. Yeah. I, I'm, as I'm as you're reading this scene, I'm, I keep seeing images from the movie. Yeah, I do. That whole battle really sticks with you visually, doesn't it? Yeah, it really, it really does. And as I'm, you know, you're, you're describing the orcs going up with the trees and everything. Yeah. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Boy. I'll let you get back to it, though. Sounds good. Aragorn strode on through the inner court and mounted to a high chamber in the tower. There stood the king, dark against a narrow window, looking out upon the vale. What is the news, Aragorn? He said. The deeping wall is taken, Lord, and all the defense swept away, but many have escaped hither to the rock. Is Aemir here? No, Lord, but many of your men retreated into the deep, and some say that Aemir was amongst them. In the narrows, they may hold back the enemy and come within the caves. What hope they may have then, I do not know. More than we. Good provision, it is said, and the air is wholesome there because of the outlets through fissures in the rock far above. None can force an entrance against determined men. They may hold out long. But the orcs have brought a devilry from Orthanc, said Aragorn. They have a blasting fire, and with it they took the wall. If they cannot come in the caves, they may seal up those that are inside. But now we must turn all our thought to our own defense. I fret in this prison, said Theoden. If I could have set a spear in rest, riding before my men upon the field, Maybe I could have felt again the joy of battle, and so ended. But I serve little purpose here. Here at least you are guarded in the strongest fastness of the mark, said Aragorn. More hope we have to defend you in the Hornburg than in Edoras, or even at Dunharrow in the mountains. It is said that the Hornburg has never fallen to assault, said Theoden. But now my heart is doubtful. The world changes and all that once was strong now proves unsure. How shall any tower withstand such numbers and such reckless hate? 
Had I known that the strength of Isengard was grown so great, maybe I should not so rashly have ridden forth to meet it, for all the arts of Gandalf. His counsel seems not now so good as it did under the morning sun. Do not judge the counsel of Gandalf until all is over, Lord, said Aragorn. The end will not be long, said the king. But I will not end here, taken like an old badger in a trap. Snowmane and Hashufel and the horses of my guard are in the inner court. When dawn comes, I will bid men sound Helm's horn, and I will ride forth. Will you ride with me then, son of Arathorn? Maybe we shall cleave a road, or make such an end as will be worth a song, if any be left to sing of us hereafter. That's really the end of hope, isn't it? It's over for he's, him. He's not, yeah, he's not hoping to, to live. He is expecting to die, but now at least he wants to die. In battle. In, in battle, Di- right. Fighting he the wants, monsters, defending the right. circle of light. This is the Beowulfian moment. Yeah. Maybe we shall cleave a road. Yeah, maybe we will cleave a road or we'll just make an end worthy yeah. of a song. Yeah. And then that last little bit about if any be left to sing of us hereafter. I mean, he knows this is really, really dark. That's yeah. dark. Yeah. Yeah. Our story may never be told. Yeah. But then we get that glorious charge. And this is the courage uh, in the face of overwhelming odds. But even as the gate fell and the orcs about it yelled, preparing to charge, a murmur arose behind them like a wind in the distance. And it grew to a clamor of many voices crying strange news in the dawn. The orcs upon the rock, hearing the rumor of dismay, wavered and looked back. And then, sudden and terrible, from the tower above, the sound of the great horn of Helm rang out. All that heard that sound trembled. Many of the orcs cast themselves on their faces and covered their ears with their claws. Back from the deep the echoes came, blast upon blast, as if on every cliff and hill a mighty herald stood. But on the walls men looked up, listening with wonder, for the echoes did not die. Ever the horn blasts wound on among the hills. Nearer now and louder they answered one to another, blowing fierce and free. Helm! Helm! the riders shouted. Helm is arisen and comes back to war! Helm for Theoden king! And with that shout the king came. His horse was white as snow, Golden was his shield, and his spear was long. At his right hand was Aragorn, Elendil's heir. Behind him rode the lords of the house of Aeorl the Young. Light sprang in the sky, night departed. Forth, Aeolingus! With a cry and a great noise, they charged. Down from the gates they roared. Over the causeway they swept and they drove through the hosts of Isengard as a wind among grass. Behind them, from the deep, came the stern cries of men issuing from the caves, driving forth the enemy. Out poured all the men that were left upon the rock, and ever the sound of blowing horns echoed in the hills. On they rode, the king and his companions. Captains and champions fell or fled before them. Neither orc nor man withstood them. Their backs were to the swords and spears of the riders, and their faces to the valley. They cried and wailed, for fear and great wonder had come upon them with the rising of the day. Man, 
That is such a, oh, I love it. Such a great moment. And you know, we're going to actually be there in the narrative. I know, before in no long. time, man. It's yeah. Not gonna, yeah. I, I really actually kind of hesitated for that exact reason. I thought, well, we're going to be there soon enough. But no, nah, this, nah, this nah. is classic courage. It is classic courage. And you're so right with what you said about, you know, Phaedon losing all hope. When he rides out, as you said, he has no hope that he is going to survive. He has no hope that there is even going to be anyone left after all no. of this because orcs it from from where he stands it just looks like orcs are just going to overrun the world yeah exactly all men will be destroyed we're trapped here in helm's deep and yeah. all of us are going to be wiped out for sure yeah yeah this is complete lack of hope and yet he still goes out he still meets the challenge that's right he has the courage and what happens they're victorious yeah and and so it just kind of goes to show you know, what is the thing we've, we've talked about with despair before? You know, right. don't despair because you, you don't, don't know, know what's that's going right. to happen. And that's the thing we see here. He does lose hope, but he doesn't reach despair. True. Right. What would Denethor do here? He wouldn't get on a horse and ride out and charge. True. He would stay and he would probably light some sort of pyre and, you know, <laughs> I don't know, throw his son on it. I don't know yeah. what terrible thing he would do. No, that's true. I mean, I think that's like destructive despair. I think that we'll see in my next passage that you can have despair and you can just still go out there just that's true. Kind of, just to meet death yeah, in a very Germanic way. But I get what you're saying. I, I, it's Phaedon doesn't completely despair the way the next person, well, the person in the next reading is going to despair. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Man, it's such a powerful moment, though. It really is. We didn't really say it officially on mic, but we talked in preparing for this episode how we really wanted to focus on hope and courage against overwhelming odds. Right. And you really see that here. I mean, I think we've seen it in all the passages so far, but yeah. especially with this one, it just yeah. it really feels powerful with this one. There's so much in the way of, of the numbers, yeah. uh, of the sheer unrelenting force of the orcs, of the hatred of the men of Dunlin that for over 500 years, these people have just bitterly hated yeah. the Rohirrim. Yeah. And yeah, every step of the way, it just seems to get worse and worse. You know, they, they turn and they see the large numbers against them. Then they get to Helm's Deep and they find out that half the force there is either too old or too young. Yeah. Most have seen too many winters. Right. Or oh, too few. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The devilry from Orthanc. I mean, it just every step of the way, it gets worse and worse. Yeah. And that's why we see Theoden, you know, fretting in his prison. Yeah. And that's how we use this place. He now. actually doubts Gandalf's counsel, doesn't he? Yeah, he, says, he does. Know, Gandalf's counsel isn't sounding all that good right now. Yeah. And of course, Aragorn, <laughs> yeah. Estel yeah. himself says, hey, don't. You might want to wait until the very, very end exactly. before you question his counsel. He is right. Gandalf. Especially now, now that he's Gandalf 2.0. Right. But yeah, it is all about that circle of light moment, the end worthy of song. Yeah. Is there a, a, is there a tiny sliver of hope in that, that you hope that you can at least tell a good story in dying? Yes. You know, that's yeah. not much hope. <laughs> Granted. It's not much. No, an end worthy of song is not a great hope. No. No. But it is very Germanic. It is. It's very Germanic. Yeah. It fits the Rohirrim, certainly. There were a few other things I kind of wanted to point out. The reason that I... You know, when we're crafting these readings, or at least when I'm crafting these, I'm I'm putting them together in chunks because I don't want to read for an hour. And the bits and pieces I chose were specific. You know, there were some things like the fear that even secrecy wouldn't help, uh, mm. the, the, the sorrow for the loss of his people. I think, honestly, this is a little bit of him 
having some remorse over the fact that he's not been a very effective king lately because of hmm. the influence that Soderman had over him. A little bit of regret, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. so. And then I love that moment where he recognizes Erkenbrand's valor. He, he likens him to Helm the Hammerhand and talks about his valor. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think Theoden right here is wanting to show that same valor now. He wants that opportunity. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an admirable trait. And now that he's no longer that, you know, old man completely held captive, basically, in Megiseld, he's that's what he wants to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, I really wanted to point out that hatred for the men of Dunland. I thought that was super important. Because- I think that is super important. And I think it's it's easily forgotten, especially, you know, for people who maybe have came to the books through the movies. Yeah. And yeah. You don't you don't really see the Dunlendings too much at Helm's Deep in the movie. No, just a little bit, um, yeah. It's it's implied that they're there, but once you mm-hmm. actually get into the battle scene, pretty much all you see is Urukai. Yeah, the Urukai, yeah. And because it's the Dunlendings and they're and they're mentioned really explicitly here, you you're yeah. reminded that there is this just this ancient blood feud and and grudge yeah. between the Dunlendings yeah. and the Rohirrim and, and that that somehow makes it feel even more hopeless to me. Just because right. you know that you're not going to be able to win these people over. You're not going to be able to treat with these people. No, there will be no treating with them at all. Yeah. They will not leave, as Gambling says, until they capture the king or they die. Yeah. Well, Sean, you've got a passage to read now, don't you? I do. I do. My next passage, folks will see why I had to put it after Alan's passage. Ah, uh, um, yes. <laughs> and, well, all right. I'm not going to lie. This is my absolute favorite passage in all of the Lord of the Rings. I know. I and know. <laughs> it's going to be a couple of years before we get to it in the narrative. So I'm just, I'm just doing it's this fair. today because I have a chance. I'm going to take because it. Because it's a great hope and courage moment, isn't it? Especially as we talked about earlier in the face of overwhelming odds. It is. Uh, that's really what this is. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is from book five, chapter six, the battle of the Pelennor fields. I'm going to read almost from the beginning of the chapter. In my opinion, this passage needs no introduction, but if you've been following the podcast for a few years, you may know that I like to call this one the moment. This passage has no introduction. This passage (laughs) needs no introduction. (laughs) All right. Theoden, king of the Mark, had reached the road from the gate to the river, and he turned towards the city that was now less than a mile distant. He slackened his speed a little, seeking new foes, and his knights came about him, and Durnhelm was with them. Ahead, nearer the walls, Elfhelm's men were among the siege engines, hewing, slaying, driving their foes into the fire pits. Well nigh all the northern half of the Pelennor was overrun, and there camps were blazing. Orcs were flying towards the river like herds before the hunters, and the Rohirrim went hither and thither at their will. But they had not yet overthrown the siege, nor won the gate. Many foes stood before it, and on the further half of the plain were other hosts still unfought, Southward, beyond the road, lay the main force of the Haradrim, and there their horsemen were gathered about the standard of their chieftain. And he looked out, and in the growing light he saw the banner of the king, and that it was far ahead of the battle with few men about it. Then he was filled with a red wrath, and shouted aloud, and displaying his standard, black serpent upon scarlet, he came against the white horse and the green with great press of men, and the drawing of the scimitars of the Southrons was like a glitter of stars. Then Theoden was aware of him, and would not wait for his onset, but crying to Snowmane he charged headlong to greet him. Great was the clash of their meeting, but the white fury of the Northmen burned the hotter, and more skilled was their knighthood with long spears and bitter. Fewer were they, but they clove through the Southrons like a firebolt in a forest. 
right through the press drove Theoden Thangil's son, and his spear was shivered as he threw down their chieftain. Out swept his sword, and he spurred to the standard, hewed staff and bearer, and the black serpent foundered. Then all that was left unslain of their cavalry turned and fled far away. But lo, suddenly, in the midst of the glory of the king, his golden shield was dimmed. The new morning was blotted from the sky. Dark fell about him. Horses reared and screamed. Men cast from the saddle lay groveling on the ground. To me! To me! cried Theoden. Up, Beolingus! Fear no darkness! But Snowmane, wild with terror, stood up on high, fighting with the air, and then with a great scream he crashed upon his side. A black dart had pierced him. The king fell beneath him. The great shadow descended like a falling cloud, and behold, it was a winged creature. If bird, then greater than all other birds, and it was naked, and neither quill nor feather did it bear, and its vast pinions were as webs of hide between horned fingers, and it stank. A creature of an older world, maybe it was, whose kind, lingering in forgotten mountains, cold beneath the moon, outstayed their day, and in hideous airy bred this last untimely brood, apt to evil. And the Dark Lord took it, and nursed it with fell meats, until it grew beyond the measure of all other things that fly, and he gave it to his servant to be his steed. Down, down it came, and then folding its fingered webs it gave a croaking cry, and settled upon the body of Snowmane, digging in its claws, stooping its long, naked neck. Upon it sat a shape, black-mantled, huge and threatening, a crown of steel he bore, but between rim and robe naught was there to see, save only a deadly gleam of eyes, the lord of the Nazgul. To the air he had returned, summoning his steed ere the darkness failed, and now he was come again, bringing ruin, turning hope to despair and victory to death. A great black mace he wielded. But Theoden was not utterly forsaken. The knights of his house lay slain about him, or else mastered by the madness of their steeds were borne far away. Yet one stood there still, Durnhelm the young, faithful beyond fear, and he wept, for he had loved his lord as a father. Right through the charge Mary had been borne unharmed behind him until the shadow came, and then Windfola had thrown them in his terror, and now ran wild upon the plain. Mary crawled on all fours like a dazed beast, and such a horror was on him that he was blind and sick. King's man! King's man! his heart cried within him. You must stay by him. As a father you shall be to me, you said. But his will made no answer, and his body shook. He dared not open his eyes or look up. Then, out of the blackness in his mind, he thought that he heard Durnhelm speaking. Yet now the voice seemed strange, recalling some other voice that he had known. Begone, foul Dwimmer-like, Lord of Carrion! Leave the dead in peace! A cold voice answered. Come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the houses of lamentation beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured, and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. A sword rang as it was drawn. Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. Hinder me, thou fool. 
No living man may hinder me. Then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour the strangest. It seemed that Durnhelm laughed, and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn I am, Eowyn's daughter. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if you be not deathless, for living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. The winged creature screamed at her, but the ringwraith made no answer, and was silent as if in sudden doubt. Very amazement for a moment conquered Mary's fear. He opened his eyes and the blackness was lifted from them. There some paces from him sat the great beast, and all seemed dark about it, and above it loomed the Nazgul lord like a shadow of despair. A little to the left facing them stood she whom he had called Durnhelm, but the helm of her secrecy had fallen from her, and her bright hair, released from its bonds, gleamed with pale gold upon her shoulders. Her eyes, gray as the sea, were hard and fell, and yet tears were on her cheek. A sword was in her hand, and she raised her shield against the horror of her enemy's eyes. Eowyn it was, and Durnhelm also, for into Mary's mind flashed the memory of the face that he saw at the riding from Dunharrow, the face of one that goes seeking death, having no hope. Pity filled his heart and great wonder, and suddenly the slow-kindled courage of his race awoke. He clenched his hand. She should not die, so fair, so desperate. At least she should not die alone, unaided. The face of their enemy was not turned towards him, but still he hardly dared to move, dreading lest the deadly eyes should fall on him. Slowly, slowly he began to crawl aside, but the black captain, in doubt and malice intent upon the woman before him, heeded him no more than a worm in the mud. Suddenly the great beast beat its hideous wings, and the wind of them was foul. Again it leaped into the air, and then swiftly fell down upon Eowyn, shrieking, striking with beak and claw. Still she did not blench. Maiden of the Rohirrim, child of kings, slender but as a steel blade, fair yet terrible. A swift stroke she dealt, skilled and deadly. The outstretched neck she clove asunder, and the hewn head fell like a stone. Backward she sprang as the huge shape crashed to ruin. Fast wings outspread, crumpled on the earth, and with its fall the shadow passed away. A light fell about her, and her hair shone in the sunrise. Out of the wreck rose the black rider, tall and threatening, towering above her. With a cry of hatred that stung the very ears like venom, he let fall his mace. Her shield was shivered in many pieces, and her arm was broken. She stumbled to her knees. He bent over her like a cloud, and his eyes glittered. He raised his mace to kill. But suddenly, he too stumbled forward with a cry of bitter pain, and his stroke went wide, driving into the ground. Mary's sword had stabbed him from behind, shearing through the black mantle, and passing up beneath the hauberk had pierced the sinew behind his mighty knee. Eowyn! Eowyn! cried Mary. Then tottering, Struggling up, with her last strength, she drove her sword between crown and mantle as the great shoulders bowed before her. The sword broke, sparkling into many shards. The crown rolled away with a clang. Eowyn fell forward upon her fallen foe. But lo, the mantle and hauberk were empty. Shapeless they lay now on the ground, torn and tumbled, and a cry went up into the shuddering air 
and faded to a shrill wailing, passing with the wind, a voice bodiless and thin that died and was swallowed up and was never heard again in that age of this world. <laughs> yeah, how did I know when the theme was Hope and Courage that we'd be reading this tonight? You know, it's got it all, really. I mean, yeah. you got the overwhelming odds with yeah. all these bad guys in front of them. Orcs to the left, Haradrim to the right. Yeah. Here I am stuck in the middle with, you know, the Black Rider. With Mary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the truth is, this is one of those classic moments because oh, it, is, it yeah. is, you know, Eowyn has ridden to Gondor with no hope. No hope. She specifically left because she had no hope. She had no right? hope. Exactly. And she is referred to as desperate. In yes. this passage, desperate literally means despairing. Yeah. And, and there are, I think are a couple of times in the book that she's described as having despair. Mm -hmm. That's right. She has no hope, but she has courage. She does. And her courage actually gives Mary courage. Yeah. We see that Mary's heart is the literal source of his courage. We see that mm -hmm. pity filled his heart. Yeah. And it's ultimately out of love for Eowyn that he's spurred to action because he yeah. just, he knows that she, she can't die here. He can't right. let her die. He can't let her face this enemy alone. Mm -hmm. And yet if he had, she probably would have died, but she still would have done so courageously. Well, that's true. His courage didn't change her courage. It just changed the outcome of her right, courage. Right, exactly. But they did feed each other. And they did, very much so, yeah. The death of the Witch King is very much a, a group effort. I, I don't yeah. think it would have happened if they had not both been there. That's correct. At that time. It took both of them, absolutely. Yeah. But boy, she has... Talk about courage, total nerves of steel. I mean, ice water in her veins to stand up against the witch king. Yeah. Be gone, foul dwimmer like. And then it's like Hurin telling off Morgoth, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the Hurin Morgoth moment. Yeah. It, it really is. It, it's pretty impressive stuff. Yeah. Amazing, amazing courage. And unlike the Hurin versus Morgoth moment, here she really doesn't have any hope. No. You know, I think with, with Hurin, at least we saw. You know, he has this hope that beyond the circles of the world, Morgoth won't be able to pursue him. I don't think Eowyn has any hope here because she hasn't had hope in, in days. No, it's true. In a way, she's seeking death. You know, I mean, that's what Mary even says that, right? Yeah. She was seeking death, she's having seeking no hope. seeking death, having yeah. no hope. Yeah. Yeah. It's very Beowulfian. It is. And, and Mary has seen it in her eyes or his eyes, he thought at the time. Right. Just, that's right. He knew that this is a person that has no hope. They're just going to, they're just going to fight and die. Yeah. Hmm. The other thing I, I love is, you know, so we talked about how this reminds us of Hurin and Morgoth. It also reminds me of Luthien and Morgoth in the passage yeah. I read earlier. You know, yeah. the wit we know the Witch King's main weapon is fear, right? Right. And, and he tries very hard to intimidate her with this, mm -hmm. this threat. Oh, yeah. That, the whole idea about, you know, your, your flesh is going to be devoured yeah. and you're going to be naked before the lidless Less eye. Less naked to the lidless eye. It's a very violating kind of threat, very much oh, like yeah. we saw with Morgoth and Luthien. That's a good point. Yeah, hadn't caught that. Yeah. And just like Luthien, she's not she's not cowed by it. She's no, like, not at all. Whatever. Bring it, bro. You know? Right. <laughs> Do what you will. I will hinder it if I may. That's right. And it's not like, go ahead and try. I'm going to kill you. No. It's not that degree of certainty that she's going to win. She's just- Not at all. I'll hinder it if I may. Right. The unspoken bit being, and, and maybe I won't be able to hinder it and maybe mm -hmm. I'll die, but at least I'm going to try. Right. And maybe I'll only hinder it for three seconds. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Man, man, what? what else? I mean, wow. Even early on in the, the passage, you know, I, I tried not to get too much Theoden stuff in there because I want to save That's that fair. for you when we get there. Mm, but, yes. you know, we've got Theoden rallying his men to courage despite these yeah. overwhelming odds. To me, fear no darkness. 
And that touches on the fear being the, the main weapon of the Witch King, right? Mm-hmm. Speaking of fear, I noticed, by the way, that both his horse, Snowmane, and mm-hmm. uh, Windfola, the, the horse bearing Durnhelm and Mary, mm-hmm. both of those, even though they're mighty horses, especially Snowmane, they're incapable of mastering their fear here. Courage, I don't know. I mean, are, are we saying that courage is something that horses can't really have? Uh, I don't know. Maybe not to the extent that men have. Maybe it. so. Yeah. I think instinct at some point kicks in. Self-survival, right? Self-protection. Self-preservation. And maybe that's, Yeah. I don't want to get too philosophical about it, but maybe that's something, you know, that's a mark of courage is that you, you go and do this without regard to self-preservation, whereas right. animals are always going to, always going to put self-preservation first. Yeah. Wow. What a passage that is, though. Unbelievable. Yeah. I, I cannot wait till we get there. I know it's a couple seasons away, but oh my. That it's such great stuff. I think you may have just read the entirety of the text for that episode. I have a feeling we're <laughs> going to be spending. It probably was a whole episode's worth. Yeah, yeah. it might have been because I think yeah. we'll we'll find so much to talk about here. We'll dive so deep into that. Yeah, no doubt about it. But for our last reading today, we're going to do something really special. We're going to do a joint reading from Tolkien's alliterative poem, which is also a play, "The Homecoming of Beortnoth, Beorthelm's Son." And we recommend that you grab a pair of headphones for this next reading. Now, as a reminder to those who haven't read it, this poem is Tolkien's take on the Battle of Maldon. That was the battle where Beortnoth, the Anglo-Saxon lord, overcome by an abundance of, well, so we say, sportsmanship and overmode, <laughs> overmastering That's one way pride. to put it. Yeah. yeah it's very, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, we're just trying to be good sports, very chivalry, you know. Yeah. Um, overcome by that and, and overmode, overmastering pride allowed the Vikings to cross over to the mainland so they could have a fighting chance, instead of just keeping them trapped on the island they were on. Not surprisingly, Beortnoth was then slaughtered with his men. Oh, Beortnoth, you wild rascal, you. Well, <laughs> the homecoming takes place after the battle, after all of that stuff, and it takes the form of a dialogue between two Anglo-Saxons, Torthelm and Tidwald, who've come to the battlefield after it's all over with a wagon to look for the body of Beortnoth and bring him back to the abbey to be buried. That's right. Now, Torthelm, also known as Tata, who'll be played by Alan today, is a youth, the son of a minstrel. His head is full of old lays concerning the heroes of northern antiquity. Which is not too far from the truth. Yeah. Maybe not the youth part, but... You no, know. well, definitely not the youth. Yeah. <laughs> and Tidwalt, also known as Tita, played by yours truly, is an old farmer who's seen many battles and doesn't romanticize them quite as much. Yeah. Now, we're going to catch up to them a few pages into the dialogue when they have just found the body of their lord. And, well, we'll just say he's a few inches shorter than he used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. And that's where we're going to pick up. Well, here he is, or what heaven's left us, the longest legs in the land, I guess. His head was higher than the helm of kings with heathen crowns, his heart keener and his soul clearer than swords of heroes, polished and proven, then plated gold his worth was greater. From the world has passed a prince, peerless in peace and war, just in judgment, generous-handed as the golden lords of long ago. He has gone to God glory-seeking, Beortnoth beloved. Brave words, my lad. The woven stars have yet worth in them for woeful hearts, but here's work to do ere the funeral begins. I found it, Tida. Here's his sword lying, I could swear to it, by the golden hilts. I'm glad to hear it. How it was missed is a marvel. He is marred cruelly. 
Few tokens else shall we find on him. They've left us little of the lord we knew. Ah, woe and worse. The wolvish heathens have hewn off his head, and the hulk left us mangled with axes. What a murder it is, this bloody fighting. Aye, that's the battle for you. And no worse today than wars you sing of, when Froda fell and Finn was slain. The world wept then as it weeps today. You can hear the tears through the harps twanging. Come, bend your back. We must bear away the cold leavings. Catch hold of the legs. Now lift. Gently. Now lift again. Dear still shall be this dead body, though men have marred it. Now mourn forever, Saxon and English, from the sea's margin to the western forest. The wall is fallen. Women are weeping, the wood is blazing, and the fire naming as a far beacon. Build high the barrow his bones to keep, for here shall be hid both helm and sword, and to the ground be given golden corslet, and rich raiment, and rings gleaming, wealth unbegrudged for the well-beloved, of the friends of men, first and noblest, to his hearth comrades, help unfailing, to his folk, the fairest father of peoples. Glory, lefty. Now glory earning, his grave shall be green while ground or sea, while word or woe in the world lasteth. Good words enough, Gleeman Tata. You labored long as you lay, I guess, in the watches of the night while the wise slumbered. But I'd rather have rest in my rueful thoughts. These are Christian days, though the cross is heavy. Bairtnoth we bear, not Beowulf here. No pious for him, nor piling of mounds. And the gold will be given to the good abbot. Let the monks mourn him and mass be chanted. With learned Latin they'll lead him home, if we can bring him back. The body's weighty. Dead men drag earthward. Now down a spell. My back's broken and the breath has left me. If you spent less in speech, you would speed better. But the cart's not far, so keep at it. Now start again, and then step with me. A steady pace does it. You stumbling dolt, look where you're going. For the Lord's pity, halt, Tita, here. Hark now and look. Look where, my lad? To the left, yonder. There's a shade creeping, a shadow darker than the western sky. They're walking, crouched. Two now, together, troll shapes, I guess. Or hell walkers. They've a halting gait, groping grounders with grisly arms. Nameless nightshades, not else can I see, till they walk nearer. You're witch-sided to tell fiends from men in this foul darkness. Then listen, Tida. There are low voices, moans and muttering, and mumbled laughter. They are moving hither. Yes, I mark it now. I can hear something. Hide the lantern. Lay down the body and lie by it. Now stone silent. There are steps coming. there, my lads. You're latecomers if it's fighting you look for, but I can find you some if you need it tonight. You'll get nothing cheaper. You snuffling swine, I'll slit you for it. Take your trove, then. Ho, Tita there. I've slain this one. He'll slink no more. If swords he was seeking, he soon found one by the biting end. (laughs) My bogey slayer. Bold heart would you borrow with Bertnoth's sword? Nay, wipe it clean and keep your wits. That blade was made for better uses. 
You wanted no weapon. A wallop on the nose or a boot behind and the battle's over with the likes of these. Their life's wretched. But why kill the creatures or crow about it? There are dead enough around. Were he a Dane, mind you, I'd let you boast, and there's lots abroad, not far away, the filthy thieves. I hate them. By my heart, he then all sprinkled, the devil's offspring. The Danes, you say? Make haste, let's go, I'd have forgotten. There may be more at hand, our murder plotting. We'll have the pirate pack come pouring on us, if they hear us brawling. My brave swordsmen, these weren't Northmen. Why should Northmen come? They've had their fill of hewing and fighting, and picked their plunder. The place is bare. They're in Ipswich now, with the ale running, or lying off London in their long vessels while they drink to Thor and drown their sorrow of Hell's children. These are hungry folk and masterless men, miserable skulkers. They're corpse-strippers, a cursed game and shame to think of. What are you shuddering at? Come on now, quick! Christ forgive me, and these evil days when unregretted lie moldering, and the manner of wolves the folk follow in fear and hunger. They're dead, unpitying to drag and plunder. Look there, yonder, there's a lean shadow, a third of the thieves. Let's thrash the villain. Nay, let him alone, or we'll lose the way. As it is, we've wandered, and I'm bewildered enough. He won't try attacking two men by himself. Lift your in there. Lift up, I say. Put your foot forward. Can you find it, Tida? I haven't a notion now in these night shadows where we left the wagon. I wish we were back. Walk wary, man. There's water by us. You'll blunder over the brink. Here's the black water. Another step that way and in the stream. We'd be like fools floundering and the floods running. We've come to the causeway. The cot's near it, so courage, my boy. If we can carry him on few steps further, the first stage is past. By Edmund's head, though his own's missing, our lord's not light. Now lay him down. Here's the wagon waiting. I wish we could drink his funeral ale without further trouble on the bank right here. The beer he gave was good and plenty to gladden your heart both strong and brown. I'm in a stew of sweat. Let's stay a moment. It's strange to me how they came across this causeway here, or forced a passage without fierce battle. But there are few tokens to tell of fighting. A hill of heathens one would hope to find, but none lie near. No more's the pity. Alas, my friend, our lord was at fault. Or so in Malden, this morning men were saying. Too proud, too princely. But his pride's cheated. And his princedom is past, so we'll praise his valor. He let them cross the causeway, so keen was he to give minstrels matter for mighty songs. Needlessly noble, it should never have been. Bidding bows be still and the bridge opening, matching more with few and mad hand strokes. Well, doom he did, and died for it. So the last is fallen of the line of earls, from Saxon lords long descended who sailed the seas, as songs tell us. From Angle in the east, with eager swords, upon war's anvil the Welsh smiting. Realms here they won, and royal kingdoms, and in older days this isle conquered. And now from the north need comes again, wild blows the wind of war to Britain. And in the neck we catch it, and a nipped as chill as poor men were then. Let the poets babble, but perish all pirates. When the poor are robbed and lose the land they loved and toiled on, 
they must die and dung it. No dirge for them, and their wives and children work in serfdom. But Ethelred'll prove less easy prey than Weirdun was. And I'll wager, too, this Anlaf of Norway will never equal Hengist or Horsa. We'll hope not, lad. Come, lend your hand to the lifting again, then your task is done. There, turn him round. Hold the shanks now while I heave the shoulders. Now, up your end. Up. That's finished. There, cover him with the cloth. It should be clean linen, not a dirty blanket. It must do for now. The monks are waiting in Meldon for us, and the abbot with him. We're hours behind. Get up now and in. Your eyes can weep or your mouth can pray. I'll mind the horses. Gee up, boys, then. Gee up and away. God guide our road to a good ending. How these wheels do whine. They'll hear the creek for miles away over mire and stone. Where first do we make for? Have we far to go? The night is passing and I'm near finished. Say, Tida, Tida, is your tongue stricken? I'm tired of talk. My tongue's resting. Where first, you say? A fool's question. To Malden and the monks, and then miles onward to Ely and the Abbey. It'll end sometime. But the road's bad in these ruinous days. No rest for you yet. Were you reckoning on bed? The best you'll get is the bottom of the cot with his body for bolster. You're a brute, Tina. It's only plain language. If a poet sang you, I bowed my head on his breast beloved, and weary of weeping woeful slept I, thus joined we journeyed, Gentle master and faithful servant of a fen and boulder to his last resting in love's ending. You'd not call it cruel. I have cares of my own in my heart, Tata, and my head's weary. I am sorry for you, and for myself also. Sleep, lad, then sleep. The slain won't trouble if your head be heavy, or the wheels grumble. Gee up, my boys, and on you go. There's food ahead and fair stables, for the monks are kind. Put the miles behind. Candles in the dark and cold voices. I hear mass chanted for Master's soul in Ely Isle. Thus ages pass, men after men. Morning voices of women weeping. So the world passes. Day follows day and the dust gathers. His tomb crumbles as time knows it. It is kith and kindred out of kin dwindling. So men flicker and the murk. The world withers and the wind rises. Candles are quenched. Cold falls the night. It's dark. It's dark and doom coming. Is no light left us? A light, kindle, and fan the flame. Lo, fire now wakens. Hearth is burning, house is lighted. Men there gather. Out of the mists they come through darkling doors where our doom waiteth. Hark, I hear them in the hall chanting. Stern words they sing, with strong voices. 
heart shall be bolder, harder be purpose, more proud the spirit as our power lessens. Mind shall not falter, nor mood waver, though doom shall come and dark conquer. Hey, what a bump, Tita! My bones are shaken, and my dream shattered. It's dark and cold. Aye, a bump on the bone is bad for dreams, and it's cold waking. But your words are queer, Tordell, my lad, with your talk of wind and doom conquering and a dark ending. It sounded fey and fell-hearted, and heathenish, too. I don't hold with that. It's night right enough, but there's no firelight. Dark is over all, and dead is master. When morning comes, it'll be much like others. More labor and loss till the land's ruined. Ever work and war till the world passes. Hey! Rattle and bump over rotten boulder. The roads are rough, and rest is short for Englishmen and Ethelred's day. scene wow well that was fun <laughs> that was fun i still am surprised that you gave me the younger guy i i, I take that as a compliment because i don't know. You know i thought you'd enjoy and i thought you'd do a really good job with some of the chanting and the the elevated language that he uses a lot of that i mean the whole thing's alliterative but he has kind that, of over the top yeah yeah exactly it was fun no i enjoyed it i just had so much fun with tidwall just like oh you i know. know he's i love his little cynicism rough and, his, and matter of fact and cynical yeah i love that line about the the head you know my head <laughs> though his is missing our lord's not light <laughs> man he's it's pretty brutal yeah well and and honestly i think my other favorite bit is uh you know, oh, just lay on his body, you know, yeah, yeah. get some sleep on his body. Oh, you're a brute, Tito. That's just plain language, you know. I loved that example, by the way, because he's right. If a poet talked about yeah. that in that way, you'd be all over that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. So, no, that was that was so much fun. That was. And I think it's a really good, if we do say so ourselves, I think it's a really good <laughs> selection for Tolkien Reading Day for Hope and yeah. Courage. Because, you know, we do see in the story of Beretnoff, this is... Definitely a courageous death, uh huh. But it Foolish. was a fool's courage. That's exactly. right. That's right. And and remember that after this play, Tolkien includes this essay on overmode. Yes, overmastering pride, and that's exactly what happens to Bertnoth. Is that he has too much courage, too much mm -hmm. foolish courage, and that leads to overmode. Yeah, he needed to remember what his responsibilities were right. to his men, and not to put them in a situation that was you know untenable. Right. Tor's head. I love it. You know, the, the guy that I was reading, it, full of stories about heroism and courage. He's got all these, you know, great legendary things in his head. And he praises the greatness of Beortnoth and focuses on his glorious deeds in life. Yeah. He's very much, he's kind of like that impressionable youth. You know, he's yeah. got all these great ideas in his head, kind of stuff that we would be really into, stories of heroism and oh, sure. and courage. But Very Beowulfian. I mean, you kind of yeah. get that sense that that's where his inspiration's coming from. Very much so. And I think it's interesting. You know, earlier in this episode, we were talking about how courage is kind of that pagan Germanic virtue. Yeah. And Torthelm is very full of of ideas of courage and that, that mm -hmm. Germanicness and that he's the one who sings these songs of Frodo and Finn, as, as yeah. Tidwald kind of calls him on. Whereas Tidwald is 
he's a bit more practical. You know, oh, he's, he's very the one practical. Yeah. He's kind of grounded in the now. He's like, look, we're Christians now. You know, this isn't. Yeah. This isn't the pagan past. This isn't Be- this ain't Beowulf. Basically, right. he says. He literally says we're burying Beortnoth, not Beowulf. Right. Yeah. Right. And he says, let's get the body back to the Abbey so we can bury him, so that he can have some hope for salvation. And I think right. that while you don't really see. Tita used the word hope there. I think that's really what he's speaking to is that he's, oh, yeah. he kind of represents right. that side of that equation. Yeah. I love that aspect of his practicality. You know, he's yeah. very much looking for, you know, that, that eternal well-being of his Lord and not just, yeah. you know, the glory, you know, there's a lot of glory here too. Tor's talking yeah. not just about courage, but about glory. We, we see that yeah. several times. And like you said, Tidwald is, is far more practical. Yeah. Speaking of nonsense courage, I think Torthelm is guilty of a little bit of nonsense courage when he, you know, these corpse strippers come up. Oh, and, yeah. You know, yeah. Torthelm kills one of them. Yeah, total overreaction. With, with the yeah. sword. And, you know, Tidwald's like mocking him. Like, you didn't need to do that. These are just, these aren't Vikings. These are common thieves. Yeah, exactly. And yet he doesn't quite get the message because he still wants to go thrash the third one. Yeah. Right. And he's all, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm blooded now. I'm going to go get this guy. <laughs> right, exactly. Come on. And it could be his first kill for all we know. He's a young guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's probably spent more time learning poems than fighting. <laughs> probably. Yes. I think there's a little bit of simple courage in here too. Mm-hmm. There's actually a moment where Tidwald tells Torthelm mm-hmm. to have courage. You know, we're, we're almost to the cart. We don't oh, have to yeah, carry yeah. this heavy body much farther. Right. And we're not going to fall into the river. No. Yeah. And, and then, you know, Tor discovers what we already know. The Vikings came across the causeway without a fight, and he really wonders how that could even be. Yeah, exactly. It's and and so Tidwell just kind of tells him like what what we already know. Like yeah, Beartnoth let them come across. <laughs> He's like yeah, needlessly like, noble. Yeah. Oh man, that's such a great bit of alliteration, and also it is gets right to the heart of the matter. Exactly. I mean, if you want to reduce this down to two words that describe Beartnoth, Beartnoth's yeah. son, it's needlessly noble. It's needlessly noble. Yeah. Also, Tita gives the detail that I don't think I caught before, which is that Beartnoth's men were outnumbered. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very, to very much few so. to face many, yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. You know, for those of you unfamiliar with the Battle of Maldon, the Vikings landed on this this island that was, well, it was more like a spit of land connected by a very narrow little bit. Right. And they could only cross that in single file, which, of course, would be easily defensible. Just line up a bunch of archers. Should have been. Yeah. <laughs> Should have been. And that was the whole thing. Beortnoth decided, well, we're going to have a fair fight, so let's let them come across, you know, freely without yeah. without stopping them, and then we'll have our fight. And it's like, when you're outnumbered, you know you're outnumbered. Yeah. Why are you doing And you're that? defending your homeland. Yeah. You have an obligation to the men beneath you exactly. and to the Lord above you. Yes. To protect your land. And, and that's more important than, you know, this sort of needless, <laughs> needless nobility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you see the effect that it has on Torthelm and Tidwald is, you know, as they're talking about the future, you know, this had to feel kind of apocalyptic to them. The Vikings coming and raiding and, you know, burning everything. Mm -hmm. And they have this very kind of apocalyptic discussion about the future, you know. Oh, yeah. Will the Vikings, this the Onlaf of Norway, will his right. guys take Britain from the Anglo-Saxons the way the Anglo-Saxons took it from the Welsh? <laughs> Sorry, And the Welsh. Welsh are over in the corner going, yeah! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please, get rid of them. Yeah. We'll take it back. And so they have this, you know, this little conversation. And, you know, Torthelm, again, being the one full of all these ideas, this mm-hmm. this this grandiosity in his head is like, no, oh, the yeah. Vikings can't do that. Oh, yeah. These aren't the Vikings of old. And, you know. Right. Right. Tidwell's like, well, I hope, 
That's all we can hope. That's right? all we got is hope. You know, we don't really know. No. No. Oh, Tortholm's bit about God guide our road to a good ending. I really like that because I think he's talking about more than safe passage back to the Abbey. I think he's actually Ooh. talking about the future of England, you know? Yeah. Or at least the, the future of this kingdom, this area. But yeah, I yeah. think also the future of England. You're right. Taken in context with those comments about the invading Vikings. The Vikings the, coming. Yeah. The, God the guide our road to a good ending. Yeah. It's sort of a- Oh, that's a good point. It's a prayer for deliverance, I think. Which would be hope, really, right? I mean, that's that's- Hope in its uh, yeah. theological sense. Yeah, very Hope much so. Hope that God will deliver them and protect them. Very much so. So he's yeah. got that, you know, the, the Christian virtue of hope there. But then mm -hmm. he gives this this last speech, which oh, I have to yeah. say, I think you nailed. Thank you for that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> very Beowulfian. Yeah. And it's almost like he's, you know, like, like you said, he's he's dreaming. And, and I thought you did that well. But it's almost like he's channeling a vision, almost, yeah. it seems like. I think that's exactly what we're supposed to take that as, is yeah. he's sort of channeling this this dark future you know the doom doom and, and yeah cold falls the night this there's this is very circle of light very yes with this idea of sort of the fading the decline of anglo-saxon power which yeah i guess is true in a way if you look at the mm -hmm. the norman conquest well that's the thing and you know you got to wonder historically would the norman conquest have succeeded had the english not just succeeded in in driving off an invading Viking army mm. and then had to rush down to engage the Norman army. Yeah, that's an interesting point. If they hadn't had to just beat the Vikings, might they have been able to fight off the Normans? Yeah. It's a really interesting question. It's a very interesting what if. Yeah, boy, it, it really there's a, is. There's a great alternate universe uh, story in that. That would be interesting. I mean, if, if the Normans were never able to successfully invade and England remained fully Anglo-Saxon, that would be a great alternate yeah. history uh, story, wouldn't it? That'd be awesome. I would read that. If someone wants I would, to write it. Tolkien would, read would have it. read that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's very much this idea of like the circle of light and the Vikings being like little, little being like Grendels. little Grendels coming from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He even chants about the courage they're going to have. And this is really the heart of the whole poem, isn't it? That whole idea about heart shall be bolder. Yeah. Yeah. Especially yeah. as our power lessens, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea that as that circle of light gets smaller and is surrounded by more and more of these enemies, that's when we'll become even bolder. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he says heart shall be bolder, I mean, that should make us think of courage. We were talking oh, about the etymology of courage earlier in this episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Comes from the same word for heart. Right. Yep. And then my last little bit there with Tidwell chiding Torthelm for his <laughs> heathenish words. Yeah. But, oh, he does. Yeah. But despite that, I mean, he doesn't really have that much hope for the future himself. You know, he's... It's less about decline for Tita, I think, and more about just like everything going on as it always does, right? Yeah. Tomorrow morning's going to be just like today. Yep. The roads are rough and rest is short. And it's- Our life is our life, man. Yeah. It's going to stay this way. And that's yeah. all it is. Yeah. Man. A super cool play. I'm really, really glad is. that we decided to read it. And worth reading in full if you're interested in the story. It's a great yeah, story. Definitely. We did a fair bit of it, but not the whole mm -hmm. thing. No. So check it out. It's in what? Tree and Leaf and- um, and the Tolkien Reader. Tolkien Reader, right. It's not in Tales from the Perilous Realm. It's definitely worth looking for. Definitely. Well, folks, that will do it for this. Uh, I'm going to say this and still be startled by it. Sixth annual <laughs> Tolkien Reading Day episode. Yeah. Next week, we will be welcoming some listeners back to join us for our 14th installment of Questions After Nightfall. Uh, and then we're off a week for Easter. But we will be getting back to the text on April 11th with the first of three amazing episodes on The King of the Golden Hall. Yes. Oh, it's going to be good. Yes. Talk about Beowulfian <laughs> spoilers, yeah, right? Quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, in the meantime, don't forget that the talk continues all night long at the Prancing Pony. Absolutely. Our awesome listener community keeps the conversation going in all of our social media spaces. At our common room on Facebook, you'll find comments, questions, corrections, and more on every episode, as well as updates from us throughout the week. Just look for the Prancing Pony podcast on Facebook. And be sure to follow the page and join the group that we've recently created. The page is a great way for us to communicate with you, keep you up to date on the latest happenings like the mood. But the group gives you a great opportunity to come together in community and discuss Tolkien with your fellow listeners. Absolutely. And you won't regret it. There's a lot of great discussions there. Yeah. And we also have some really good discussions going on over on Reddit. You can find us there at r slash prancingponypod. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both with the handle at prancingponypod. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please share us and consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you want exclusive content like postscripts, full bonus episodes, live Discord events with me and Sean, or episodes without digital ads, then check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod, where you can support the show by joining the Fellowship of the Podcast. Now, let's see what messages Barlaman has brought us. Sean? Well... I don't know about you, Alan, but I'm kind of tired from all the reading. It's been a long night, man. It has. But I think we have just about enough time and energy for one softball question. So here we go. Fair enough. Zach T. asked us, if you could learn more about one of Aragorn's adventures, which one and why? Hmm. Do you want to start us out? I think I will. Truth is, we drew straws on this one, and you managed to get my first choice, uh, his adventures <laughs> as Throngill and Gondor and Rohan. So... Steal my thunder, man. That's all right. I have to. Well, come on. Everybody's going to know what what adventure. What else would you? What else would you pick? Yeah, exactly. So I decided I'd pick something different. I'd like to know a lot more about his capture of Gollum and the terrible journey from the Morgul Vale to the Dead Marshes, where he captured him, and then all the way back to the north end of Mirkwood. Yeah, I'm going to read from the Council of Elrond when Aragorn explains, "He will never love me. I fear, for he bit me, and I was not gentle." Nothing more did I ever get from his mouth than the marks of his teeth. I deemed it the worst part of all my journey, the road back, watching him day and night, making him walk before me with a halter on his neck, gagged, until he was tamed by lack of drink and food, driving him ever towards Mirkwood. I brought him there at last and gave him to the elves, for we had agreed that this should be done, and I was glad to be rid of his company, for he stank. (laughs) <laughs> wow. Tell us yeah. what you really think, Aragorn. I know. Come on, Aragorn. Uh, don't don't uh... don't pull any punches. <laughs> That's right. Truth is, obviously, that would not be a pleasant story. But man, I got to tell you, I think it would be a good one. Yeah, that would be a good one. And you already mentioned the one that was my pick. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, if you're going to steal my thunder, I'm going to steal yours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which was Thorongil. I, I yeah. want to learn more about Aragorn's adventures as the Eagle of the Star in mm-hmm. Rohan and Gondor. Mm-hmm. Especially Gondor, because I think it would be really cool to see Gondor through the eyes of a young Aragorn, you know, kind of going there for the first time and knowing this is the land of his ancestors, which he's meant to rule someday or he should be able to rule someday. Yeah. But it's just not his time yet. I think that would be an incredible story. Boy, it would. I think it'd be really cool to just see him kind of learning about the city of Minas Tirith, getting to know the people, Mm -hmm. fighting to protect it and just kind of like learning to love it. As a real place, not just as an idea in his mind. I think yeah. that would be fantastic. Oh, that would. And especially because it wasn't all rainbows and unicorns for him when he was there. You know, <laughs> no, like no. we know that Denethor, who was young at the time, was kind of a rival with him. We're, we're actually told in Appendix A, 
Though indeed Thorongil had never himself vied with Denethor, nor held himself higher than the servant of his father, and in one matter only were their counsels to the steward at variance. Thorongil often warned Ecthelion not to put trust in Saruman the White in Isengard, but to welcome rather Gandalf the Grey. But there was little love between Denethor and Gandalf, and after the days of Ecthelion there was less welcome for the Grey Pilgrim in Minas Tirith. Therefore later, when all was made clear, many believed that Denethor, who was subtle in mind and looked further and deeper than other men of his day, had discovered who this stranger Thorongil in truth was, and suspected that he and Mithrandir designed to supplant him. Oh. Now that is a story yeah. I would love to read more about. Boy, you're not kidding. And I, I love the little hint that we get there, looked further and deeper than other men of his day. Mm. Yeah. Maybe uh, with a little bit of uh, artificial enhancement there. A little huh? bit of, yeah, a little help from his friends on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that would be a great story. That'd be a great little miniseries, wouldn't it? It would. Yeah. Young Aragorn. Yeah. Well, we may still get something like it. On so. a very special episode of Young Aragorn. <laughs> it's the Thorongil episode. <laughs> it, right. it would be the one that they just suddenly like pull back. They just like go to a completely different timeline for one episode. Right. Totally yeah. different actors and everything. Yeah. Completely confusing. Well, folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. But please be sure to join us again next week when we once again subject ourselves to public ridicule and humiliation, all for your entertainment in our 14th <laughs> quarterly questions after nightfall. I think you just said why we do it, for their entertainment. That's right. Are you not entertained? <laughs> well, it's true, though. Our guests have been bringing some really challenging questions in recent Seriously, episodes. man. And you folks are not going to want to miss that. Yeah. Now... As always, we want to take a moment to thank some truly important people, our patrons at the Keardance Contribution Tier. They are Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamson in Minnesota, Chad in Texas, Lance in New Jersey, Paul in Colorado, Jerry in Texas, Bruce in California, Mario in Utah, Seth in Texas, Ella in California, Joseph in Texas, Kathy from North Carolina, Lori from Washington, Josh in Oklahoma, Carlos in California, Brian from the UK, Cameron in Nevada, Ned from Connecticut, Thad from Georgia, and Jerry from Washington. Folks, thank you all so much for your support. Seriously, and that list is getting so long that I'm going to be able to start writing our next episode while you're reading it. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. Thank you, people, really. And we also want to thank the team that helps make our show better. That would include our research assistants, along with our barlaman, Becca Davis, producer Jordan Rennells, social media manager Casey Hilsey, event and Patreon community coordinator Katie McKenna, and website guru Phil Dean. This show would not be what it is without our supporters and our teammates, so thank you all. Now, folks, be sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and, well, most of all, what you're reading for Tolkien Reading Day to Barlaman at the prancingponypodcast.com. Barlaman is a lot more reliable these days, but we do get a lot of mail. So we'll get to you as soon as we can, and your question or comment may be featured on a future episode. As always, this has been far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends. <laughs> <laughs>